Howdy, everybody, and welcome to another BP Movie Journal, the show we do where we talk about the stuff we've seen since the last time we did one of these. I'm David. I'm Tyler. We got a lot of stuff to get to because yeah, it's, it's been, been a while. while. <laughs> it's been a since while. We, uh. <laughs> but I don't have as much as I would have right. because we did the LA Film Fest episode. So I have so half the movies I saw in the last three weeks were at the LA Film Fest. So I don't have as many movies, which is why you have more movies than I do, which is why you're going to start. Sure. Every time we have like a long gap, uh-huh. I always feel like, oh boy, I feel like I have not seen as many movies as I should have <laughs> given the gap. Um, but uh, but yeah, so I've, I have uh, 11 movies, which, you know, that's not terrible for like a three and a half week gap. Um, so, okay. Uh, first is a rewatch. I rewatched Robert Wise's The Sound of Music. Wow. I haven't seen it since I was a kid. And I did it because we were, that's where we are uh, for our Best of Pictures series for More Than One Lesson. And though I had seen it before, it has been several years since I saw it, so I wanted to rewatch it. Uh, we're, into the, we're into the time in the Oscars where uh, every movie is about 10 minutes shy of three hours, <laughs> except for Lawrence of Arabia, which is over three hours. Yeah. Uh, it's crazy. This uh, Sound of Music is like... Yeah, it's literally two hours and 50 minutes. It's crazy. Wow. So, uh, I love this movie so much. Oh, good. I didn't expect to. I I saw it years ago and remember thinking like, yeah, this is pretty good. Watching it again, um, I just had such respect for the musical itself, the way the story uh, unfolds. The way it's shot, because it does not feel stagey, and I'll talk about a musical in a moment that does feel stagey, but um, this one, like, it's out in the open air, and Robert Wise is really utilizing the camera. There are moments uh, where the characters are in silhouette, like, moments that have a theatricality to them, but are not inherently staged theatrical. Um, the performances are all wonderful. I enjoy most, uh, the, the vast majority of those songs. I'm not a big fan of 16 going on 17, but Edelweiss is astounding. And, um, and I think what I really liked about it is the way the, uh, the Nazi subplot, which is to say, because it takes place in Austria, uh, and the Nazi party is gaining traction and gaining power over the course of the film, but it just sort of fades in. It doesn't happen abruptly, nor does it, nor is it there from the beginning. It just kind of gains and, and, you know, gains momentum. And, and finally it becomes a thing that is unavoidable. And I like that. uh, That's something that I did not recognize the first time that this time, I mean, if you've got, honestly, if you have Nazi iconography, in a uh, in a movie, I feel like mo- especially one that is big and theatrical and melodramatic, like *The Sound of Music*. It seems to me that you try to use that as much as you can, but there's actually tremendous restraint on the part of Robert Wise to not get there too quickly. And so, yeah, uh, I think I said that the next time I make my top hundred, mm. I think *Sound of Music* will be on there for the first time, and probably not the last time. Uh, you should rewatch it, David. I think you'd I, like it. Yeah, I definitely plan to someday soon. How many musicals are in your top 100? Because as we talked about in our Phases episode, for a long time you were not a musical guy. Probably uh, probably none, to be honest with you. Um, closest would probably be Cabaret or, 
Yeah, probably that's the closest. So to is the Sound of Music now your favorite musical? Yeah, I guess it is. All I right. do like West Side Story a lot, and I need to rewatch that. Also by Robert Wise. Yeah. Um, and so that's that might one. knock it out. But uh, but yeah, I, I think Sound of Music is probably my favorite musical. Yeah. Well, as we talked about on on that phases episode, I'm a cabaret guy, mm-hmm. and when you're a cabaret guy, you're a cabaret guy to the all end, the, yeah, or all the way, yeah, all the way, yeah no, I got the lyric wrong. All right, um, I watched um, a my one of my New Year's New Year's resolutions back at the beginning of 2015 was to watch more old movies. Okay, because I had found that since we started uh, in 2011, since we started being uh, going to press screenings and stuff. Not to brag, we could yeah, go we to press screenings okay. and stuff we like that right. sometimes. Um, I found myself like feeling like, oh, I'm a critic now. Like uh, at the time, I guess I was an amateur critic. Now I am a semi-professional critic. Sure. Um, David, let me, let me throw this out there. We're getting paid. Well, I guess not for this, but for real episodes, we're getting paid for every word. Yeah. What do you think true. of that? So we're prof- because we do uh, this, we're semi-professional. And there's ads on the website, which is where the, reviews run so we are we are semi-professional critics anyway but once i felt like i'm a critic now i started trying to watch as many of that year's releases as i could Mm -hmm. you know um and i still do that to a certain extent but i found myself not really catching up on old movies and i still have some huge blind spots i mean you'd be shocked um at some of the blind spots would i be appalled shocked and Uh, appalled both both things um uh, so, but I've been doing a pretty good job, uh, which is what brings me to watching more silent films, including, Ooh. uh, a, the, this, uh, first one I'm going to talk about today, which is a 1924 French film called La Inhumane. Okay. Um, I'm not sure if I'm saying that right. It's L apostrophe inhumane. It means the inhuman woman. Okay. And it's, uh, about a, uh, very famous, very wealthy sort of socialite woman and famous singer, uh, who everyone in Parisian society wants to marry. Okay. Uh, and people come from all of like sheiks and people from all over the world come and they want to woo this woman and marry her, but she turns everyone down. Um, and then one of her suitors after being turned down at a party, then gets in his car and, uh, drives it off a cliff. Oh my. Uh, he commits suicide because he was turned down. Um, and she struggles with this, feeling bad, but then also feeling like the public wants her to continue being who she is, this very public figure. And so she goes and does her performance like the next night and it tears the city apart. Half of them are saying good for her and half of them are saying she's inhuman. Hence the title. Mm. Um, how, how could she? Um, and then it, it, well, it's kind of uh, what I'm not saying is that the movie is weird okay. and I, uh, it's already been weird, but it gets weirder after this. And part of the reason it's so weird is because this is not just a movie about its plot. Uh, the director, um, I had his name up, Marcel Leherbier, Leherbier, Marcel Leherbier, um, wanted to use this movie to illustrate the idea that has since become pretty commonplace, that cinema is the melding of all arts. Mm-hmm. And so not only is this a movie, but uh, the uh, production design is so, it's 1924 and it's so super of the moment that if you, I bet if you saw this movie in 1934, you'd probably laugh at it because it would seem so dated, right? Okay, but now yeah. enough time has passed. You know what I'm saying? Yes. Because it's so kind of like everything is so like 20s. Um, and I guess that would be like 
early like Art Deco, I guess, would be sure. around that time, or Art Nouveau around that no. time, something like that. I don't know. Uh, I'm not an art guy. Uh, I like movies. I don't even really read. Um, <laughs> I do like <laughs> I do like the cadence that you <laughs> fell into. I like movies. I don't really even read. Yeah, like it's yeah. you sounded a little a little oafish. Just yeah, then. I'm, a, I'm a pretty dumb guy. Um, <laughs> uh, and and the. Uh, I've really appreciated, and I'm not sure, this seems to have happened gradually, but I feel like when I was a, a budding cineast, mm-hmm. right? And for quite a while, silent movies were always in black and white, right? Okay. And I do feel like there's been gradually more of an a, attempt to restore silent movies to the way they were actually screened at the time, which is with tinting and toning right. and all that sort of thing. Um, and I really appreciate that. I, f- I find that very dynamic and it's very interesting to watch movies no. uh, in, in that way. What are your thoughts on that? As a, you're a silent movie guy. Well, it's, uh, I mean, if that is how the director wanted it to be seen, then that is how it should be seen. And yeah. it's, it goes, this actually, oddly enough, in, in, a, in the most abstract way, um, fits in with the, uh, sort of my view on like grindhouse movies and the over romanticization romanticization you got it okay of of that sort of thing um specifically the idea and i've said it before i'm sorry people are tired of me saying it uh yeah there's at least one guy there's one guy but you know what whatever (laughs) uh go listen to um worth playing for um you won't hear any discussion (laughs) that's where you were gonna go you did not hear any discussion of uh, death proof on there, but the idea of things being cut out of uh, you know reels missing that have to have to do with sexuality and stuff like that, and Quentin Tarantino trying to recreate a certain a certain quality because he romanticizes it as a filmmaker, but people at the time were probably just very frustrated. So uh, I don't know. It's he's trying to. Re- I feel like he's trying to recreate the wrong thing. Whereas this is trying to go back to, you know, even like since then we have started, like you said, we've started to think of them a very specific way and it would seem somehow wrong uh, to, to why would, why would we want them to be tinted or anything like that? That's, that's, it looks silly at times, but people, but does it look silly to you? No, no, no. I, I don't okay. think so. But I think some people will be like, well, this is bright yellow and this is blue. Is that supposed to be night? You know, I, that, that's weird. It doesn't look like night. They should just shoot at night or whatever. I'll just believe it. Um, <laughs> but I do think it's one of those things where we look back with a certain mindset, but people at the time were like, well, yeah, there's black and white because that's all we have. We'd prefer to shoot in color if we could. So here's what we'll do instead. Yeah. Uh, and so if that's the case, then that's how we should see it. Yeah, uh, I'm all for it. In this uh, La Inhumane uh, Blu-ray, which is put out by, uh, it was restored by Lobster Films and re- uh, put out by Flickr Alley, who can do no wrong as far as I'm, as I'm concerned. Flickr Alley puts out awesome stuff all the time. Um, and uh, it, yeah, so it's full of bright colors. It's very erratically edited. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> I was reading about it being a very, uh, uh, I guess, opening to a very divisive reception at the time because some people were like, bravo this is uh, uh a new you know level of what cinema should be and other people were like this is just trying too hard <laughs> the, yeah. uh, this is this is madness um and it, it gets weird in narrative terms uh, as well because any this is almost kind of i almost shouldn't say this because i was a bit 
um, puzzled by it. But any description you read describes it as a science fiction movie. But it doesn't, nothing I've said is science fiction, and it doesn't become that for a while. Wow. But then it very much is. Uh, David, this might be the best movie ever made. It's fantastic. It's, yeah. it's kind so, of amazing. So uh, people should definitely check it out. All right. Um, this, is the, this is the first I've heard of it, so uh, that's very exciting. I got the Blu-ray if you want to borrow it. All right. That sounds great. Um, right. Okay, so we are into my next musical. Okay. Which is the best picture of 1964, which is George Cukor's My Fair Lady. Okay. This one is Henry not going Higgins. to be. Henry Higgins. Ow. Ugh. I've okay. never actually seen it. No I just, fan, uh, yeah, I don't care for it. I just think of Christopher Guest at the end of oh, yeah. uh, Waiting for Guffman. How are you? Yeah, I think I'm really oming in on it. Uh, <laughs> Is this the second movie journal in a row in which you've discussed Christopher Guest for some reason? Uh, probably, yeah. You know what? There will be a reason to discuss him in uh, in a moment. Oh, good. By a moment, I mean quite a while from now. Okay. Um yeah, uh, My Fair Lady is not a bad movie. Um, this one definitely feels st- uh, stagey, and maybe that is as George Cukor wanted it, which is fine. Um, except that, uh, you know, when I was talking about it with Josh, who is more familiar with the musical of Sound of Music, he actually told me about some songs that were cut out for the film. And okay, How he, long is that stage play? <laughs> I'm going to say in the area of three and a half hours. <laughs> I don't know. And so, uh, but... And he he said, "Oh well, these were the songs." And I was like, "Oh yeah, I can definitely see why those were cut out, just because there's a more makes for a more fluid narrative." Uh, with this, I could definitely see them needing to cut out some songs. Um, is this one that, also three hours long? This one is two hours and fifty minutes long. Wow! Yeah, right? Crazy. Yeah. And so, um, but it had you know some of the songs are catchy and fun and. And Rex Harrison is very good at, as Henry Higgins. Um, Audrey Hepburn <clears throat> is very good. I think it's just her character that I find annoying, you know. And so, in in our discussion, which actually has not gone up yet, uh, we keep pushing it back because there are more pressing episodes to do. Um, we come to the conclusion that the film might be sexist and is probably classist, <laughs> and there's a, there's a lot going on there um, because this this character is quite annoying. This, this, uh, you know, Cockney character that Audrey Hepburn is playing just, she, it's not merely that she talks a certain way. It's that like, there's, there comes a moment when like Henry Higgins servants like have to give her a bath and she responds like it's acid or something like that. And she's <laughs> like, I'm pretty, look, I know working class people at the time probably didn't have access to like a nice hot bath on a regular basis, but they know what they are, you know, yeah. and they know that this is not going to hurt them. So and you know what I'm picturing right now? What's that? Is Calamity, Calamity Jane and yeah, Deadwood. No question getting, about it. <laughs> getting into a hot bath. Yeah. And so, <laughs> but she at least knew what one was, yeah. you know, and it just stuff like that. And the fact that for a long time, she looks genuinely dumb and... And I just think like, am I, wait, who am I supposed to side with here? Because Henry Higgins is kind of an elitist asshole. But when we see the way that she is presented once she has been changed, Mm -hmm. I realize, well, she does look better now (laughs) and she talks better now. Shit. I think I'm supposed to sympathize with Henry Higgins, son of a, and then it, then it does shift and we're actually against him and for her. But once she's now more dignified. Right. And. It's just, it's a weird, I like, I do always like uh, a shift in, 
sympathy on the part of the audience. And I think that's what was supposed to happen, except that I feel like in that shift, it we wind up forgetting why we are now on her side. Right. It's like the shift confirms his initial sort of. Yeah. I yeah. See. This yeah. is not like the shift in, you know, the Babadook where it goes from, you don't like the kid and you're on her side. And then without even really knowing it, you're on his side mm-hmm. against her. And it's just like, I don't even realize how I got here. Uh, this is a very clear shift and one that, uh, I'm not very happy about. So this one Despite some good performances in art direction, you know, there's some good stuff to it. Uh, this one is not going to be on my next top 100. <laughs> I will say that. Uh, all right. I watched, speaking of, uh, I don't know, not that this is Grindhouse, but speaking of exploitation movies, um, Scream Factory, which is the Shout Factory horror yeah. imprint, puts out some delightful stuff uh, constantly. Uh, and so I watched, uh, this is a double feature. I'll talk about the first one now. Okay. Uh, it's a film directed by the actor David Keith. Um, okay. He's yes. a character actor, not Keith David. Right. Um, uh, it's a horror film based on an HP Lovecraft story. Okay. Um, which I've, I'm already forgetting the name of the Lovecraft story. Um, the film is called the curse and okay. it stars uh, a young Will Wheaton, uh, who he and his sister have become, uh, let's see, they're, their dad died or the dad went out. And so they and their mom move into their grandpa's place, their mm-hmm. mom's dad's place, uh, a farm. And, uh, this guy's an asshole and his son is an asshole too. Mm-hmm. Um, oh wait, maybe she remarries. That's who it, that's what it is. It's not, not a grandpa. Her mom remarries, uh, his, or their mom remarries. Yeah. And this guy's an asshole. That's what's important. The guy's an asshole. His son's a big dumb asshole. And, um, <laughs> and then I, something from space, a big glowing orb from space crashes into their farm, into the, Mm -hmm. like it lands out in the, I don't know, field, I guess is the word for it. Um, and, uh, they're all fascinated by it. And then it just sort of like dissolves and goes away. But by dissolving, it's whatever it is has seeped into the soil. And so they start developing disgusting sores on their faces. Okay. And, uh, physically changing, their food, like, uh, they have an apple orchard and it grows beautiful apples, but when you cut them open, they're full of maggots Okay, and all their food is kind of full of maggots yeah. and stuff like that. And basically the point I'm trying to get at is this is an incredibly disgusting movie. Yeah. And not and like, like obviously the food stuff is, a I don't know. I don't know if that's obvious, but to me, food gross stuff is particularly gross. Yeah. Um, it, it just, uh, that stuff, uh, uh, weirds me out but then there's also lots of body horror because they're going through sure. these changes and uh there's one part where the mom who is the most uh, she's the first sick and most sick uh they're sitting around watching tv and she's just sort of like doing her like knitting or sewing and sort of like zoning out and she uh sews a sock to her palm oh. <laughs> it's really gross um now david how zoned out do you have to be <laughs> well yeah although maybe she's you know losing feeling in her yeah head, exactly um and then of course they go from being sick to becoming sort of like murderous monsters right. um and uh it's uh, honestly uh i had a blast <laughs> i thought it was a really cool movie it sounds great when was it made uh it's david keith is is not like an older guy like no i want to say it's mid to late 80s okay um 
uh, I'm sure that I will. Uh, I did not know he directed up. things, and it's definitely uh, the da- same David Keith. Yes, right? it is, okay. uh, and he hasn't directed much. Okay. Um, Eighty-seven is the year. Okay. Um, yeah. Uh, so I would definitely recommend uh, the Curse if you have a strong stomach for stuff that's gross. Apparently, so it's directed by David Keith, but apparently um, the effects were overseen by um, I'm forgetting his first name, but Fulci, the Italian. Is that his name? Lucio Fulci? Yeah, yeah. The, the Italian... Oh, that all Like, gore fest. Well, that explains the maggots. The director, um, yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, the, the, the effects are fantastic and really, really gross. Second season of Survivor, David. Uh, <laughs> people, you know, it's only the second season. People haven't learned things yet. And so there comes a moment when uh, our, uh, our survivors are out... Not outcasts. What is it? What do you call that? Castaway. Oh. Our castaways, uh, they happen upon a tree that has fruit on it. And one guy who became known for just being very headstrong uh, just grabbed a piece of fruit and just bit right into it. And immediately was like, and then uh, they open up the fruit. And there are, I'm going to say, in the area of several hundred, let's say 300 gnats right in the core of it oh man just like and they just start flying out all over the place it's really really gross that's pretty gross i have no idea how they got in there like there's i don't know yeah it's like it's like this is a a gnat fruit that's it that's (laughs) it's like one of those clown cars (laughs) exactly yeah the the purpose of this fruit is to be gross um now we know where gnats come from they grow on trees people used to think that rotten meat turned into maggots like hundreds and hundreds of years ago before we had like science right that's where they thought maggots came from that when meat rotted that's what it turned into now it's a function of like flies would land on it i guess like lay eggs and then okay all right yeah yes no i that is odd to me because i'm sure you know people just see overnight like or maybe not overnight but over the next couple of days I guess they would still see flies flying around it, though, right? Yeah, but, I mean, there's a lot of stuff people didn't know. Yeah. I mean, they thought that it, for, for the, your body and your health was dictated by the balance of your humors. That's well, right. That's true. Uh, doctors in the Civil War didn't know about germs yet. Uh, yeah. So they would... I remember learning this in my Civil War class in high school. Like, would amputate a limb mm-hmm. and then wipe off the saw on the bottom of their boot. Yep. And then go amputate another limb because they didn't know that that was where infections came from. Uh, yeah. That's pretty tough. All right. So that's where we got from talking about David Keese, the curse. That sounds about right. Yeah. That should tell you what the movie is. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. Next, I watched a movie on Mubi. Oh, good. Who um, did not sponsor this episode. No one... No one sponsors. No one sponsors the yeah. movie journals. The movie journals are just for you guys, the listeners. Right. Until we decide Until otherwise. Until we decide otherwise. Because <laughs> you know what? I've got to say, we got some prime real estate here. <laughs> um, okay. I saw a documentary called Indie Game the Movie. Oh, I've heard of this. Yeah. Um, I think I had heard of it, too. I think some friends of mine that are gamers had told me about yeah, it. Yeah, this is not new. No, it's a few years. Okay. It's, it's like three or four years old now. Um, and it's very interesting, and it is about... Uh, you know, I don't know much about modern gaming. I don't know why I said modern. I don't know much about it, gaming at all. Uh, I know there's this guy Link. There's this guy Mario. There's a Sonic. I think that's where I'm where I'm out. Okay. Um, and so, uh, but in the world of 
independent or, you know, indie gaming, you'll have like one or two guys working on something for like a year and then it will be released on Xbox where it it doesn't have to be a physical thing. People can just download it through Xbox or through Steam or any number of other services. And literally these guys, if their game goes well, if if it's reviewed well and if enough people get it i mean literally again literally overnight they can be millionaires Hmm. uh and what's more is because there's only one of them or two they stay millionaires it is not like a large company that will make you know a hundred million dollars on something and then it just goes to the larger company and needs to be dispersed to among a number of employees so we see um the uh the the guys, be, they focus in on two games. One is called Fez, and one is called uh, Super Meat Boy. Uh, both of which I had heard about. Just I don't know. How, again, I'm friends with. Sounds people like that you know, know more about games than I do. It would appear so. Um, but uh, and it's. Just I think I them. just tend, when people start talking about video games, I just sort of like power down. I'm interested and in that, them that, to that's a point. I, that's that's my thing. I have nothing against video games. Yeah, but unlike you, I have zero interest in them. I'll say this. So many of them sound interesting. And then I watch someone play them. And unless it's one of those Arkham games, which, and these, the games do get, they get more and more cinematic as they go along, which is kind of fun for me. And they become very story oriented, which some gamers actually have a problem with. Um, did you say story oriented? Story oriented. Yes. <laughs> oh, we coined it. That's, that's great. Yeah. Uh, mail that to yourself. That's yeah. You got to say that saves a lot of time. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, uh, but yeah, and so when I watch somebody play one of these games where you can roam this whole land and do all kinds of things, I just feel overwhelmed. I almost have a panic attack, and I immediately get tired. <laughs> As I, like uh, my co-host Josh plays games, and so I, was, I, I for his birthday a few years ago, I purchased uh, one of the Assassin's Creed Assassin's Creed games for him, and then I watched him play, it and I was just like, "Whew, this is." tiring i said this is this not tiring to you and he said no this is great i thought oh just give me a give me super mario kart and i'm good i know where that track begins and ends but anyway that's a good yeah the good way to look at it so the uh so there's really nothing particularly amazing about indie game it's not that different in structure and execution from any of the other, you know, human interest documentaries that you and I have talked about, mm-hmm. like the American Scream and uh, various other things. Um, it is, you know, a lot of it's talking heads and following people as they're developing this and all that. But um, it does seem to be more polished and it does seem to be more fully realized um, because it'll follow these guys, but then it also interviews this other guy who did a very who made a very successful indie game a few years ago and has some perspective. So he provides us with the history and what it is to go through what these other guys are going through, but he's on the other side of it now. And so it's it is very interesting and 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 you come to realize just how complex it is as far as, you know, a lot of people will start a two-person company and then one person leaves, but they still sort of have ownership over the game. And mm-hmm. it's it's crazy. So it's very interesting. Um, it didn't necessarily make me want to play these games. Not that that was the point of it, but um, 
but it made me it it really doesn't feel any any different than independent filmmaking or home haunts or any of these other things where the people are so passionate about them and they want to do things the way they want to do them, which keeps them from working for larger companies, which they undoubtedly could work for, but they, they don't want to do that Mm -hmm. because first off, if they're successful, it means they're, they are successful, but also they want to do things on their own terms. And you come to realize that with a lot of these games that are act, that seem very simple, there's a the person puts a lot of themselves in there in ways that you wouldn't immediately assume. So I think one of the reasons that I liked it is it, it, it caused me to look at games not a different way. I already I already recognize that they can be very complex and very fascinating, but um, but games that e- even the simplest of games has uh, tremendous elements of creativity to it. So uh, I was very happy that I saw it. I don't know if it's still on Mubi. I think it is. Um, so check it out uh, if you have Mubi. And at this point, why wouldn't you? Exactly, you ought to. Uh, all right. The second half of the uh, double feature was is the sequel in name only, Curse Two: The Bite. Okay. It has absolutely nothing to do um, with the the curse. In fact, uh, I have come to realize since that there are actually four movies in the Curse series. None of them have anything having anything to do with one another. Was that first one super successful? Or I, something? Yeah, I don't know. It's just like I, I, they just they're all lumped together. Um, but only the first two are on this this Blu-ray. 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 It is not as good as the first one, but still decent and still pretty gross. Okay. Uh, this one involves a uh, couple who are on a road trip out to California and they decide to take a. Uh, shortcut through a closed part of the desert where the government has been doing radioactive radiation testing. There it is. And so, uh, the eighties, if it weren't, uh, (laughs) you know, what is it? Uh, nuclear radiation testing or toxic waste. Uh, yeah, exactly. Acid rain. Uh, Let's not forget acid rain. This guy gets bit by a, um, radioactive snake and, um, much like in the movie, this is what the movies have in common. He begins to change. He doesn't Mm -hmm. die from the bite. He begins to change, um, in ways that are really gross. Uh, again, some real body horror type stuff here. I have to assume based on the timing, a lot of these got not necessarily green lit, but I have to assume the fly oh, maybe. really yeah. caused a lot of this body horror where there's no, there's no monsters after you. The main characters are turning into monsters. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's probably true. Um, and, uh, this one, so it's not as good. What it does have is uh who's the um uh what's the term and i'm forgetting donald pleasance's character from halloween um oh the ahab yeah the yeah, <laughs> yeah you know from behind the mask yeah the the ahab of curse to the bite is played by jamie farr <laughs> <laughs> who's a traveling salesman who also happens to be a snake expert he's like a snake enthusiast sure. he like knows stuff about snakes and so he's the one who is trying to track this guy down um, and save him and also save his girlfriend from him because he's turning into a, a monster. Now, it seems to me that if you're a snake expert, that does not necessarily mean you are an expert in a guy turning into a snake <laughs> due to radiation. <laughs> I guess you take what you can get <laughs> yeah, uh, in that situation. Um, yeah, not as good, but uh, it's pretty gross. Basically, uh, uh, it also... Um, now, do you know, Tyler... The uh, the actor or actress, I guess, uh, Shiri Appleby. 
Do you know who that is? No. She is currently on people's radar because she is on the uh, uh, surprise hit Lifetime series Unreal. Okay, I don't know that either. Really? Yeah. You haven't even heard of Unreal? It's a it's a big deal, and we'll be talking about it later. Oh, okay. Um, but she was also, before that, she was on Life Unexpected, which was a uh, show that um, was really good and then became really not good really quickly, unfortunately. Okay. Um, but anyway, young Shiri Appleby uh, is in is in this movie uh, in in the final act when the guy he runs away from everyone because he realizes his basically his arm is turning into a killer snake with a mind of its own oh um and so he wraps up his arm runs away and gets taken in by a um kindly uh preacher in his family and the daughter is played by shiri Appleby. um and so that was interesting to just see like oh she's a big deal right now because of her show and here I am watching her at like 11 years old, uh, being scared of this hand snake thing. Um, Maybe that's why they, uh, why they, why I got this nice Blu-ray release. People are like, we got to capitalize yeah. <laughs> on this yeah. unreal show. So let's, yeah. Let's put the 10 year old version of the actress from this basic cable hit on the back half of this horror Blu-ray, um, double feature. Oh, uh, this thing's a gold uh, mine. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, uh, I don't want to get into these. Both sound trem- delightful to me, David. Yeah, they, I mean they are gross, and if that's what you're looking for, there's a certain school of horror, um, body horror, is what I'm talking about. That's gross. I don't mean it's gross in a gory way, although there is. Mm. Um, uh, there is. If you look on the, this, if you look on the back of the Blu-ray, you will see at one point one woman gets her jaw ripped off, Ooh. and so it's just like her face and that's bloody tough. <laughs> yeah. Um, so there's there's gore, but mostly it's the body horror stuff, and that is. N- nothing both attracts and repels me as much as body horror. Oh yeah. I'm, I'm obsessed with it, but it's also, you know, there are some, I know some people like watch movies through their fingers. I never do that, but the closest I come to like having to look away, yeah. but not being able to is body horror. For some reason I find it really, really uh, compelling. It absolutely. I mean, the fly is one of my favorite. That is, being in my top hundred, the fly is on my top hundred and it's not going anywhere because it's such a wonderful film on so many levels, but there's just something about your body deteriorating or changing that is so disturbing to me. Uh, specifically like, you know, like there comes a moment when like a car- when the character's ear falls off or, or something yeah. and moments like that, there's something about like this used to be on my body. It used to be a part of me and now it's just gone. And it's so, and it, but it's not, it didn't disappear. It's just right here. I'm literally holding it and there's nothing I can do to make it a part of me again. That idea is so horrifying to me. Uh, I don't know why. Um, well, I don't know why, cause it's, it's a, an inherently horrifying idea. And it, but you know what? Um, did you ever see, we're going to get off topic for a second. We're still going to talk about movies. Did you ever see a movie from 2002 called in my skin? I think it's French. Maybe it's French Canadian. Um, no, is I don't think very well received, but I fucking love this movie. Okay. And part of what I what I'm interested in about, about it is that um, it's a it's a sort of non supernatural feminist body horror movie. In the idea that you and I think the idea of becoming disassociated from your own body is a horrifying thing, mm-hmm. but the idea is a lot of you know. Western culture does that to women, makes them think of their bodies as something that is not a part of them or that they're sometimes in combat with, Mm. you know what I'm talking about? Um, and in my skin is just a a woman is at a cocktail party and she, I think gets a cut on her shin. And from there, just one thing leads to know that she becomes increasingly fascinated with 
her skin and removing it and peeling it off and just starts doing horrible things to herself. All you Uh, have to say is peel off skin and you've got me. So, um, yeah, everyone should check out in my skin and then email me at David at battleshipretention.com to tell me how angry you are at me for recommending (laughs) that to you. Because I think literally everyone I've ever told they should watch it didn't like it. Uh, so maybe I'm, uh, the only, uh, person, uh, on the side of in in my skin, but, uh, it's a really cool movie. Okay. So for me, uh, my next movie is Duncan Jones, Warcraft, which is a film that I was completely ready as everybody else was to dismiss and think was very stupid which it still kind of is, but it's not good at getting good notices across the board here. It is not. Um, and it's not very good, but I, I, I do have a certain degree of respect for it because on every single level from a plotting to a, certainly a visual effects, um, to the acting, everybody is putting in the effort. This is not a situation where it's like, hey, we just say Warcraft, uh, you know, we'll be fine. Uh, We'll get a a mass audience. Uh, It's not that. Everybody is working as hard as they can. Mm -hmm. Uh, They have character, you know, the characters that we see are about as stock as you can get, but you get actors like Toby uh, Cabell in there. Is that how you say his name? I have no idea. Yeah. I've chosen Cabell. It's probably not Kevill. It's probably not Kebble, which is how I've been saying in my head until just now. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Ben Foster's in there. Hmm. Um, Paula Patton uh, does a very good job. Yeah. Here she's good. Uh, And you just have all these actors and none of them are remarkably well known. I'd say the most well known of the bunch is either Paula Patton or Ben Foster. And they are not necessarily huge stars by any stretch. Um, So you have these lesser known actors and they're all really attacking their characters and really trying to make them work. They're really tr- doing their best with the dialogue. Um, you know, there's kind of a mishmash of accents, which isn't always great. But uh, and it really sets up certain things. I mean, there I, I have no doubt there will be a sequel. The movie is not done great here. It is done insanely well in China. I heard that one hundred fifty million dollars in one weekend. Yeah, that's interesting. <laughs> that's crazy to me. So I feel like it's going to have to. It's going to. A sequel is going to be made and nobody here is going to be like, is going to understand why. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but yeah, and it just, uh, visually, I think it's, it's gorgeous. I think it, they do a really good job with the, the motion capture and creating like skin texture on these orc characters to the point where, you know, you're not seeing them at night in the rain. You're seeing many of them midday high sun and they look like they occupy the same space as, mm. you know, real life characters. So that's what I mean. It's just, and I saw it in 3d and it was a pretty good use of 3d. And it was just a, it makes it sound like I really liked and responded to this movie in many ways. It's the story's clunky as hell, but, uh, Oh, I started to mention the sequel. Sorry. It does a very good job of establishing a world and setting up like there could be, a, there will be a sequel and I'm, I'm not sure if I'd say I'm anticipating it, but they do set up things here that I'd be interested in seeing them pay off. Uh, but there's also enough finality to this movie that I felt if this movie is going to be very good, I would be satisfied by it. But so that's all as far as like 
everybody doing their part to make Mm -hmm. this the best movie they can. The script is really clunky. The characters, as much as the actors are trying, are very stock. And it's just uh, it's just a so so it's just not inherently engaging. Perhaps if I was familiar with the game at all, uh, it might be a satisfying watch. But as it is, it just seems like a very standard uh, sword and sandal sword and sandal fantasy epic, which is all well and good, um, except that it's just not. It's not bringing much new to that genre except, again, the effort that everybody's putting in. So I find myself very torn on the movie. Like, I, I, respect, I respect everybody involved with it much more than the film itself. Yeah. I, yeah I, I, like I said before, I don't know anything about video yeah. games. I remember being at, in Hall H at Comic-Con in, I think, 2013, which is when they like, announced with Warcraft with a, with a standalone teaser they'd shot just for yeah. that. I don't think it's a part of the movie at all. Yeah. Um, and it was like, I was like, oh, like they started showing something. I was like, I don't know what this is. Like, it's going to yeah. be something cool. And then it said Warcraft. And I was like, oh. There was one moment early on. Because that's the other thing is I didn't get the feeling that they were catering only to <clears throat> fans of the game. There was, only, there was one moment very early where the camera pan, pans past like a little creature and there was a smattering of laughter. And I was like, what, what, what was that? And, and I thought, oh, that's a laughter of recognition. Okay, got it. And yeah. th- there's no possible way that I could that I could recognize that because okay. I don't know. But And as we discussed in the last main episode, there is no Leroy Jenkins, which is the only thing I know about Warcraft. Yes, there is not. Uh, and that is something that I have watched uh, two dozen times. Sure, absolutely. <laughs> it's a lot of fun. Yeah, I don't know. The moment I came back, I watched that. <laughs> I like that. It's like the rare internet video that's funny because it's supposed to be, I guess. Like, yeah. And most of the stuff that's funny on the internet is because something happened <laughs> accidentally or something went wrong. Yeah. And I guess for all the other people playing the game, something did go wrong. <laughs> yeah. But Leroy, yeah. this went exactly as he planned. Yeah. And it was Could hilarious. Could not have gone better. <laughs> this is an A+. Plus. Yeah, no question about it. Oh, I love that. All right. Um, I, yeah, speaking of Comic-Con, that was like the first time. I didn't know what the Leroy Jenkins thing was, and I saw like um, T-shirts at Comic-Con. Back. Really? Because that, that clip is like close to 10 years old now. Maybe it might be 10 years old. Is it that point. old? I think so. Wow. I remember seeing T-shirts that said, Save Leroy Jenkins. <laughs> and that was when I looked it up, and uh, yeah, uh, my life has been all the better for it. <laughs> All right, speaking of uh, major... Uh, I just want to pause this and watch that again, but yeah. we can't. Yeah. Uh, speaking of major studio releases that most people don't seem to like that uh, we like a little bit, I saw Thea Sharrock's Me Before You. Okay. Which is a, uh, you know, tearjerker uh, romance in the vein of uh, love story, that, mm-hmm. that sort of that sort of thing. Um and uh, I liked it, but I'm a sucker for that sort of thing is the, right. is the thing. I'm a big old softy, and uh, I went in knowing that it was going to, uh, you know, jerk a tear or two from sure. me, and uh, it did, and it worked. Um, and not in a way, like, where I feel, like, because I remember seeing a couple of years ago the um, the other, another dying person, Weepy, uh, If I Stay. And oh, yeah. I bald through the movie but the whole time I'm like this is so fucking stupid like <laughs> i totally understand how i'm being played here yeah. like i am being played and it's really uh cheap and cynical and it's just because it's 
it's you know dialed in the formula that i'm having some sort of uh, involuntary reaction to it doesn't mean that it's good you know it just means that it's efficient i guess but i didn't enjoy if i stay this is a, a movie that i actually enjoyed um uh, i think uh the the performances are fine they're not great um the star is amelia clark from uh game of thrones and i do feel like she's maybe trying too hard to distance herself from mm-hmm. the Khaleesi, like, cause, um, Daenerys Targaryen, AKA Khaleesi, I think, sure. AKA mother of dragons, um, is, you know, uh, has great internal strength and resolve and stuff like that. That's kind of what defines her character. And so she goes out of her way here to play, um, her character as kind of like gawky and awkward and like bubbly, naive, but caring. We just like, say gawkward. Since we're combining words. Yeah. yeah since, You're welcome. Yeah, we're in the portmanteau business over here. <laughs> um, portmanteau-ness. Oh, yeah. and nope. it doesn't work. Yeah. <laughs> um, port, portman business. Doesn't work. Yeah. Uh, no way to do that one. The, the words need to sound alike. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then uh, the, the story, if you don't know, is that she uh, plays a young woman who gets hired to be um, a, not a nurse, but a sort of... Um, caretaker um for a rich young man who has uh become paralyzed uh, essentially from the chest down he has some movement mm. um in his arms but he's um paralyzed uh played by sam i always forget how you say his last claflin name. claflin from yeah. the hunger games and i want to say from snow white and the huntsman right oh i don't know he was the know. other guy the other guy the one sure. who wasn't chris emsworth in that i movie? don't remember anyway um and uh you know, he's, I, I don't know. There's a, there's a thing that I, I feel like has been written about a lot, but I don't know if it's common knowledge about the movie. So I kind of don't want to say what it is. Do you know what I'm talking yeah. about? Okay. Um, and I think that was handled fine, but I am also, this is me always being quick to check my privilege. I am not a disabled person, so I can't see it from that point of view. Do you know what okay. I mean? Yeah. Like it's easy for me to say, well, that's, not that's a character not sure. a representative of all disabled people but w- maybe when disabled people aren't widely represented by main characters in movies um uh, a person who is disabled might have a different point of view on that so yes it didn't upset me um but i um completely understand why some people are upset um by uh, this character's choices yeah um i don't want to say much more except that his parents are played by jenna mcteer and bill nighy and that's always great oh nice what did you just what did you just talk about with jenna mcteer uh on the the uh la film fest episode kyle and i both saw and loved painted black oh that's right yes Um, yes yeah uh definitely check that out whenever it gets a release uh but yeah i liked me before you i cried Mm -hmm. and then it was over yeah (laughs) All right. So I'll tell you a movie that uh, I don't think will make you cry. Okay. Uh, and that is Nicholas Winding Refn's The Neon Demon. Oh, you saw it? I did. I didn't know you saw it. Yeah. And which leads me to believe, may, I don't, at this point, if I'm not always 100% which site I'm seeing it for, mine or yours. I think I'm, I think. What do you mean yours? You basically run Battleship. Okay. I'm joking, of course. Ours. Um, and I think I saw it for ours. I'll have to look it up. But anyway. Um, were you at the same screening that Scott was at? No, no. I saw it before, before he died. I saw it before it was cool to see it. Um, 
So uh, now I have to check because I this, thought Scott saw it for us. But maybe you're right. This might be my favorite. Yeah, I think this is definitely my favorite Nicholas Winding Refn film. I've seen Valhalla Rising, I've seen Drive, and Only God Forgives, and now this. And so, and then I saw the English language version of uh, Pusher, which he only produced. Okay, but uh, did you see what was it called? Oh, the one with John Turturro that everyone forgets that he made. I saw that one. It wasn't very good. Mm, I do not. I, I probably did Fear not X. see it. Uh, no, I did not. Uh, this, I think the movie was really great in a lot of ways. I saw a Scott tweet that it's very trashy. I agree. Um, but in a way that is delightful and in a way that yeah. Nicholas Winding Refn really embraces. Okay. Scott saw it for us. So you, okay. saw, you saw it for more than one lesson. Absolutely. Because if there's one movie that the more than one lesson audience is clamoring <laughs> for, clamoring to hear about, it's the neon demon. Um, I guess it's got demon in the name. So... As one would expect, the film is beautiful. I mean, it is really gorgeous. Uh, but I think that I think that I say "but" as though that's a bad thing. One of the things that bothered me about "Only God Forgives" is that it was so visually oriented that it's almost as though Nicholas Winding Refn forgot that he was telling a story. I don't necessarily think that movies should only be about story, but he was telling a story and seemed to realize, "Oh shit." And uh, I see what you're saying, but I don't think it loses track of the character. I, to, be, to just to come clean, I love Only God Forgives. I think it's terrific. You're incorrect. <laughs> um, um, now, when you say the character, you mean either Chris and Scott Thomas or the police captain. Uh, yeah, mostly the police captain, I think, is who I think. He's like, good. I like him a lot. He's interesting. Uh, he's a, Yeah, he's a pretty fantastic character, I think. Yeah. And Chris and, Scott, Chris and Scott Thomas is also very interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, but yeah, that's, that's a film where I don't think it felt almost like a placeholder for me because I don't think he understood, not understood. I think he lost track of the thread. I think he lost track of what he was trying to do and maybe didn't know how to pay off that story or, ex- or explore those characters in a meaningful way. And so I think he just sort of from a story standpoint, went through the motions and a character standpoint, went through the motions and then just focused in on the visuals, which are beautiful, of course. Yeah. Um, but maybe, maybe this is just me. Cause I talked about before, um, movies that deal with the idea of redemption through suffering. Yeah. Will always like, uh, awake my Catholic heart, <laughs> oh, <laughs> I sure. think. Yeah, and yeah. so, um, and maybe that's part of why I, uh, disagree with you on only God forgives. Fair enough. Um, well, the Protestant in me is just like, hey, come on, guys. <laughs> um, and then I and I don't love Drive. Uh, I love I. the I love the use of music. I think it's visually beautiful. I love some of the performances, specifically Albert Brooks. But once again, that's one where it has a main character, and you don't really know what drives him. Um, this one, I think, is maybe the f- the most fully realized of his recent films. Uh, it is about. Uh, Who's it? No, not to go. Elle Fanning is a young girl who comes to town uh, to get into modeling. And the moment she comes in, like, there's just something to her that the other models don't have. The other models are very vapid and cold, and there is definitely there's a, an inner beauty to her. And so you see her get pulled further and further into the modeling industry. Um, and 
you just see the way other characters uh, respond to that, and you see the way it changes her. So that so great performances all around. I think everyone does a gr- a really great job. Um, it as I said, it's beautiful, wonderful use of music, and I do think that in this case, he has a really solid sense of deliberate pacing because we are watching just the complete disintegration of a human being into something that they want to be, but, or they think they want to be. Uh, and we realize very quickly, we don't want them to be that thing. Um, it is a marvelous film. It is currently my second favorite movie of the year. That's exciting for me. Yeah. I think you'll love it. Good. Um, moving on to this, this is a, these Blu-ray double feature releases. It's like all I watch now. It's like, uh, this is the, I'm about to embark on the second of three okay. that I'll be talking about um, uh, on this movie journal. And this is a, uh, but this one is two that very much belong together. Um, the first one, they're both films by Agnes uh, Varda. Okay. And the first, uh, they're both from the uh, uh, early 1980s, I guess. Um, and the first film is, I guess it's a documentary um, called Jane B. Par Agnes V. Jane okay. B. by Agnes V. Okay. And it's a, documentary of sorts kind of but not really at all about the actress jane birkin um and um uh, jane birkin is uh as an actress she was in uh blow up but she's also probably maybe better known um as a model and as the um one-time wife of serge gainsbourg and okay. mother of charlotte gainsbourg that's who jane birkin is um and this is a series of interviews with Jane Birkin, but they're not, I get the impression. I don't know because I don't like to read about how movies are made. I'm like kind of, uh, like, uh, almost what's the word I'm looking for. I'm like an ironclad purist. Like I like to, uh, I'm talking about what happens between the beginning and end of the movie. And that's it. I don't want to know about other stuff, but sometimes it makes me sound stupid. Someday we need to do an episode about that because I find myself heading in the same direction. Uh, and I might actually be there already, but as I do that, I find myself asking questions about my reason for doing that. And is it an actual purity or is it laziness? (laughs) Am I, have I found a good, theory that embraces my laziness but i think i think if you i'm not saying you're lazy no i'm saying i I think the only reason finding out about this extraneous stuff sounds like hard work to you is because you're not interested in it the people who are doing it it's not hard work to them Hmm, that's true they're interested so they want to follow up they want to watch the special features and read the you know um i don't know interviews and stuff like that but anyway so my impression of uh, partially how this movie was made is that there were interviews done off camera Mm -hmm. and from that scripts were written. Okay. So it's Jane Birkin talking about herself and her backstory, but also how she views herself as an actress and how she views um, herself as a mother and as a woman. Uh, But they're all, you can tell that she's not speaking extemporaneously. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you can tell because the camera movements as she's walking through a place are very meticulously timed. Um, and then there's also some things where ideas that must have come up in these interviews are conceptualized. Like there's uh, an extended sketch where um, Agnes Varda and Jane Birkin play Laurel and Hardy. Okay. In a black and white comedy short where um, she, um, 
Agnes Varda get Varda gets uh, Jane Birkin a job at a bakery, and then they get, and so like it's all the comic stuff you know from yeah. Lone Hardy, but then they it turns out Agnes Varda's character, whichever one she's supposed to be, I can't remember um, the the bigger guy. That's uh, that's Laurel, Stan Laurel, or is that that's Oliver Hardy? That's so she's supposed to be Oliver Hardy. Turns out the bakery is also an art gallery, and she's. Uh, hanging her paintings backwards in the art gallery. They get into a discussion about art and then they get into a pie fight. <laughs> so uh, that's an idea of the kind of stuff that is happening in this movie. Um, uh, Jane Brecken also gets to play sort of a Renaissance lady of the, you know, the court. And at one point she plays a uh, sort of Spanish flamenco dancer woman uh, only to stop and say, uh, I hate this costume. Enjoy it while it lasts. I will never wear this costume again. Uh, I don't know how to describe it. Eventually, I'm gonna, I have to write a review of this Blu-ray. Um, I don't know how to describe it except to say that I absolutely loved it and would watch it again in a second. And it's uh, one of my favorite. Uh, I can almost guarantee, you know, every year uh, uh, our friend over at uh, Rupert Pumpkin Speaks. Right. Uh, I, it's one of my favorite things I get to do every year is write my top 10 film discoveries, older films that I discovered in this year. And we're only halfway through the year, but I can pretty much guarantee that Jane B par Agnes V is going to be on that list because it's so delightful. You had me at pie fight. Um, <laughs> okay. So, uh, the last thing I saw was the neon demon. And so, or last one I talked about was neon demon. So I will transition into, from that, I will transition into uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Out of the Shadows uh, because they work really well together. <laughs> I'm joking, of course. It was a jarring, jarring shift. Uh, Did you literally see them on the same day? No, no, no. Uh, with, but I don't think I saw anything in between them. And so, And Neon Demon really haunted me. And uh, don't worry. TMNT... O O T S. I'm very bad at that. Uh, knock that Sounds like right out of me. TMN toots. <laughs> right? <laughs> Something like that. Yes. T- or is it? Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. TMN toots. Uh, that yeah. sounds gross. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. So the movie's terrible, obviously. Um, I went to see it with, uh, our friend, Adam Rebitaro, who was in from out of town. Right. And so Jason, no, wait. Adam and I went to see it. Did you see the last one? I did not. Okay. See, I think I'm fine. I haven't seen either one, but my main takeaway from reading reviews is that people who saw the last one like this one Mm -hmm. only in comparison. Uh, yeah, I like this one. Uh, I like this one. So Jason saw both and I think he said that the first one is way better than this one. Really? Um, Adam saw both and I think he said this one is better than the last one. I might be wrong about that. So I only saw this one. Uh, I had nothing to compare it to. Of the three of us, I think I liked it the most. It's still not good. Okay. But I will say, and I, there's not much I can go into except that it's it's trying to do too much. Uh, it loses focus on certain characters. It I think it wastes certain characters. Um, my big takeaway, thankfully and appropriately, is that the best part of the film, and I don't say best part as though it's still bad, but it's the best one. The part that actually does work, Bebop and Rocksteady. Uh, the reason you went to see it. The reason I went to see it. Um, the reason you couldn't, you were watching the trailer on a loop oh, for three constantly, months. Oh, constantly, constantly. Um, 
the design of them is interesting and they're, but what, what got me, and this is very strange, Bebop and Rocksteady are friends. They're not like guys that, you know, are just a couple of hoodlums and they just sort of fell in with each other. They are actual friends. And as strange as it may seem, (laughs) their friendship comes into play regularly throughout the film where they do display a certain degree of concern for one another and a certain, and they do work together fairly well. Wow. They're both kind of dumb. Who plays them? I'm guessing it's in motion capture, right? Yeah. So Rocksteady is played by the wrestler Seamus. Bebop is played by an actor whose name I have forgotten, but I have seen him elsewhere. All right, you talk. I'll look it up. Okay. Uh, I believe he was on Malcolm in the Middle. Uh, But I might be wrong about that. So, uh, there, yeah, there, uh, there, it's weird to say relationship considering it's bebop and rocksteady, but their relationship actually comes through better than they ever did. You know, in the show, they're just a couple of idiots, just a couple of moronic thugs. Uh, but in this, they are still that, but I get a better sense of their motivation and I get a better sense of who they are in relation to one another. And, uh, I don't know. I, I, I liked that aspect quite a bit. All right. So. Gary Anthony Williams yes. is his name. All right. He, this dude works. Does he? He's got a ton of credits, so I don't know what you know him from. Okay. Uh, Apparently he, something. he does a lot of voice work, but also a lot of on-camera on work. Wow. Yeah, this guy's been in everything. So. All right. Well, I'm sure, I'm sure I've seen him around. Um, so, yeah, that was Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Out of the Shadows. Okay. Um, the other half of this Agnes Varda Blu-ray, uh, <laughs> yeah, I do like, we got Agnes Varda, <laughs> Ninja Turtles, Ninja Turtles out of the yeah. shadows and then Agnes, Agnes Varda. Varda. That's um, a delicious sandwich. Yeah. Um, so this one very much fits that these movies kind of should be seen, um, together and should be seen in this order. Um, so I guess in the conversations with, Jane Birkin that Agnes Varda had. She found out about a short story that Jane Birkin had written about a 40 year old housewife who falls in love with her daughter's friend, a 14 year old boy. Okay. And has an affair with him. And, um, so they made a movie of this, um, where Jane Birkin plays the lead. Her daughters play her daughters Mm -hmm. and the boy is the son of Agnes Varda. <laughs> it's incredibly uncomfortable. Although the movie itself doesn't actually have any, it's like there's a couple of kissing scenes, but anything, uh, anything beyond that is implied off okay. screen. There's not, it's um, all audio. <laughs> no, not, not even that. Um, so it is a, yeah, a movie about a 40 year old housewife falling in love with her, uh, daughter's 14 year old friend. Um, the name of the movie is Kung Fu master with an exclamation point because, uh, they, the, the first time she sort of falls in love with this boy is watching him play an arcade game. Do you remember Kung Fu Master? I don't think I do. Because there was a Nintendo version as well, which I had. Okay. Um, it's just a guy in like a gi, like a karate gi. Okay. Fighting his way through a sort of clearly like Japanese like wood floor paper wall thing. And okay. he had to going up, you had to go up levels and beat a different boss in every level. And then you save a woman at the end. It's every video game from that era. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, uh, it was really it sounds like, very similar to a game that I played on my computer called Karatika or as uh, some people pronounce it differently, but it's, it's 
one guy walking through yeah. that environment and that um, kind of thing. But then sometimes, did that one have jars with snakes in them? And like the jar would fall and shadow, and then you'd have to, the snake would come after oh, you. Oh, no. You'd have to jump over the snake. Yeah, I, like I had forgotten about having this Nintendo game yeah. until I watched it in this movie, and it was so funny to me that like the this this movie uh, was <laughs> named after this uh, this arcade game. Um, so Kung Fu Master is a movie that I liked a lot once it was over. <laughs> okay, and once it got to where it ended up, and I was like, okay, I see what they were doing. While it was going on, I was like, this is certainly compelling. This is a weird fucking movie. Yeah. Because it's not only that um, it's about a 40-year-old woman falling over the 14-year-old boy. It's that almost every other character, it's like, it's not like they're cool with it. Yeah. But, like, they're way less <laughs> upset about it than they should be. With the yeah. exception of Charlotte Gainsbourg's character, uh, Jane Perkins' oldest daughter. Or oldest daughter in the movie. I think she has an older daughter in real life. It's not important. Um, she's the only one who's like, um, uh, this is disgusting. But even that is sort of presented as this is mostly about her shock at discovering that her mother is still a sexual woman. Right. Which is, uh, you know, an interesting point to play. But it's like, isn't uh, like isn't anyone just like baseline appalled by this? Yeah. It does uh, seem like, uh, you know what? By all means, it's like, I didn't know my mother was a sexual being. All right. I'll give you five minutes for that. <laughs> now, where are we going? Yeah. Cause uh, there, there's a next, there's another stop on this train. Yeah. Um, but it's, I like, I like the movie where it ends up. And also it is worth saying that even though it's full of, uh, <laughs> nepotistic casting, everyone's great. Like, yeah. um, Agnes Varda's son, uh, Mathieu Demi, it's Agnes Varda and Jacques Demi's son. Okay. Um, He's great. He's fantastic. You understand why you'd fall in love with this kid. Oh, he's incredibly boy. charismatic. Uh, he's good at Kung Fu Master. Sure. Uh, um, uh, no, he's great. Uh, Jane Burke. What, you going to fall in love with some kind of loser? <laughs> I don't think so. Yeah. And um, Charlotte Gainsbourg, who I, I don't think was a big actress at that point, mm-hmm. is now an actress, of course. Um, she's fantastic, too. As she's, as a, she's also about 14 years old. And there's like there's a scene where before she finds out about the affair where she and the boy are working on a school project together. No. And she, you just see how much she like is on the one hand, not the least bit attracted to him, but also has deep affection for him as a friend. It's a really touching scene yeah. knowing, you know, with the dramatic irony of like, you know what's going on and she doesn't. Um, and she plays it really well. Uh, it's a really well-made movie that is, feels like kind of an experiment to see like, how much of this can we get away with? Like, yeah. how far can we go with this? Well, as long as we keep it within our two families, this should be <laughs> fine, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, so that's available from Cinelicious Cine- Picks, I think. They're the one who put out that Blu-ray. Uh, and it's a nice, it's a great package and great, uh, it's definitely worth watching, especially, like I said, that first one is great. That reminds me of a story that I read over the last couple weeks. I didn't read it over the last couple weeks. I read it once because it was just an article, but. Uh, it took you two weeks. To it read. took me two weeks. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm not a fast reader. <laughs> this is about two pages. Um, and it is a true story. It has been made into a couple of movies, but it's been a while since anyone has made a movie out of it. And uh, I don't remember the names of any of the people involved, but it happened uh, about, I think, 90 years ago, okay. maybe a little bit further back. Actually, at maybe 80 years ago. Uh, 
this woman who was a she was a German immigrant to the United States, and she married this guy who was very wealthy. And one day, uh, and she and I think she lived in a in a neighborhood with other German immigrants and that sort of thing. And so, uh, one day she was having a delivery made to her house, and it was a seventeen year old boy who was also a, a German immigrant. And she found him very attractive. And so the next day she ordered something. He delivered it again. She answered the door naked. They embarked on a sexual relationship, and she decided, I'm enjoying this so much. Oh, no, here's what happened. He would come and visit her every day while her husband was at work, and the neighbors were starting to notice. And so she's okay. like, well, I don't want any kind of scandal, so here's Is what I'll do. The movie they made out of this called The Postman Always Rings Twice? Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> Just get ready. Okay. So she decides, I want to avoid scandal, so here's what we're going to do, 17-year-old boy. You're going to live in my attic forever. And I'm just going to, and then when my husband, and my husband, who has no interest in the attic apparently, uh, is going to, when he goes to work, you can come down and we can have sex. And then it's back up to the attic for you. You're never leaving. And the kid's totally on board with this, probably because I'd say, oh, he's young and impressionable. And she's like, hey, awesome sex. That's fun. Um, So he would just be up there like with his books. And occasionally he would write like, uh, he would write like adventure novels or like, I think spy novels and then would send them off and get them published under a pseudonym. (laughs) Okay. So hang on. We're not done yet. Okay. So the day comes when, when her, uh, her husband starts to suspect something. And so he, but not that he certainly doesn't suspect that. How could you? Uh, and so he's getting a little bit rough with his wife because he thinks that she's having an affair. He is correct. Uh, what he's he does, not right in getting rough with her. No, no, no. He's correct <laughs> that she's having. He doesn't know how right how right he is about how much she's having an affair. She's having like a mega affair. Yeah. Uh, so the right kid, over his nose. <laughs> well done. So uh, the kid uh, the kid comes down with a gun, shoots him. The kills gun, him. Okay. Gun in the attic, I guess. That's, yeah. Shoots him. And so they thought, well, okay, well, what do we do here? <laughs> okay. So they, they messed the place up. I'm sorry, everybody. I'm, this is not a movie. This is just a real thing that happened. But there is a movie. There, there is a movie. There was a, like a comedy made about in the 70s. And then they made, a, like, I think a made-for-TV movie with Neil Patrick Harris uh, in the 90s, I believe. What's it called? Uh, I don't recall. All but, right. Um, I'm going to figure out. And so, so they mess up the house. They steal some of uh, the guy's, the, the husband's stuff and some of her stuff. By steal, they basically take it into the attic. She locks herself in the bathroom, and then the kid goes back up into the attic, and then she, like, screams a bunch. And uh, so the police come, and they just assume that there was an intruder who killed the guy. She locked herself in the bathroom, and, uh, and so she gets away with it. And continues having sex with this kid who stays in the attic. She moves across the country. Kid comes with her, stays in the attic. And then finally, uh, and then uh, she gets involved with a couple other uh, guys. And then finally, I don't remember how, but finally it all comes out. And the kid would have been charged with manslaughter. But... The statute of limitations for manslaughter 
uh, runs out after seven years. It was eight years mm-hmm. uh, since after since he was found out, and so the kid was basically just like paraded as like this huge pervert. Uh, and she was seen as this, like she, she was never brought to trial. Uh, she was not charged with anything. She was seen as some kind of victim. Uh, and the world hated this kid. So that's the story. Isn't well, that crazy? Yeah. Okay. So the movie's called, uh, the movie in the nineties is called the man in the attic. Okay. And, uh, Ann Archer plays the woman. Okay. And Len Carew plays her husband. Oh, okay. I like him. Um, yeah, I don't. I can't find the name of the uh, the older one you were talking about. Yeah, uh, I will. I found I will it in. The, it was on the Wikipedia page, um, but I found like an in depth article about this. I read the whole. I, I read all of it. I was. I had work to do. I didn't care. I was transfixed, and I was like, "Why has nobody made a movie of this?" And then I found out that somebody. I, it might have been the sixties, but sixties, seventies. Somebody made like a goofy film about it that was actually more of like a and i saw the i saw the poster and it's hilarious uh where you see like these like a a husband and wife who look kind of like angry at each other on the poster and then in the back you see like somebody uh like coming up like from more a cellar than an attic but like kind of peeking his head up as if like what's going on up here it's it's insane. Okay, I'm so sorry that we got distracted by that, but uh, I thought you would right. appreciate that story. Well, I think it's your turn anyway. Okay. Uh, I've got a bunch of rewatches, um, so I won't spend a lot of time on them. I rewatched Princess Bride. Um, Jen was watching it, so I sat and watched with her, and still good, still funny. I still don't love it as much as most people. Um, there are moments that are that I appreciate more as I've gotten older. Um and I enjoyed seeing, you know, Christopher Guest and just little little acting flourishes uh, that I don't think as a kid I appreciated. I think I enjoyed, you know, Andre the Giant and I enjoyed Billy Crystal. I enjoyed all the big things. Uh, and this time around, I think I really responded to Wallace Shawn uh, Vicini and just yeah. the way that he and the, the way that... Uh, that he is smart, but not as smart as he thinks he is. And that's the problem. And there's one line reading that I think this is the first time I have ever laughed at it. I think I've always took note of it, but this time I was like, man, I like this. And it's when he is going, he's, he's going through, they're having the battle of wits and he's going through listing like all of these things and, uh, all the, all the, things playing into his decision. Yeah. And then Carrie always says, you must, he goes, you, you really thought this through or something like that. And he goes, wait till I get going. (laughs) (laughs) That little wait till I get going was to me like the funniest thing of the whole movie. Um, and I'm not sure why. And then I do enjoy that land war in Asia line, but, uh, but I do enjoy just the movie in general. I, I still enjoy, um, it has never been one of my favorites. And I know you, I mean, you love it. Oh, yeah. I did find out, I, I guess I, the internet fascinated me the last few weeks. Um, <laughs> I did find out. The internet sure is. About, <laughs> about uh, the book, The Princess Bride. I've read it. Yeah. Sounds great. <laughs> Just yeah. like the level of meta there right, yeah. is to me astonishing. And I recognize you can't really do that with a movie. But boy, I'd love it if they tried. But of course, they're not going to because it would be seen as sacrilege to ever remake uh, yeah, The Princess Bride. It's already perfect. 
I know, but when I think of that and I think of a movie like Tristram Shandy, I think of just how amazing. Which how I've never seen or read. I've not read it, but I do own it, and I think you would enjoy it quite a bit. But like, I have the book at home. We should that, do a swap. Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> that level of meta would be fascinating to see, especially with something like The Princess Bride. So, uh, this is not my next movie. This is the movie we were talking about. The Bliss of Mrs. Blossom oh, is okay. the 1968 comedy about that story uh, starring Shirley MacLaine and Richard Attenborough as the okay. couple. And I think James Booth. I don't okay. know who that is. Here, let me, see, uh, let me see the poster. Oh, I already got away from it. Oh, okay. Um, um, because, uh, okay, where is it? It's fine if you can't find it, but. Um, is this the one you're talking about with the, uh, that's the one, like, the head poking up <laughs> yeah. from the, yeah. Yeah. Um, but I'm fascinated by the woman, uh, the housewife in this real story, mm-hmm. her real name was Valberga Osterreich. Yeah. It's a good name. But I believe she went by like Polly or Dolly. something. Dolly. Dolly. That's it. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. So it's a fascinating story. Somebody yeah. make a movie out of that, like a new one. A new one. Yeah. Um, okay. Okay. Uh, next up for me is, um, a, uh, another Blu-ray. Uh, my wife's out of town and I spent a lot of time <laughs> at home watching Blu-rays, uh, and missing her. Um, so I watched uh, a 1947 uh, film called The Red House, starring uh, Edward G. Robinson. Oh, um, it also stars Rory Calhoun, which up until this point I only knew as a Simpsons reference. Well, I know that he's always <laughs> standing and walking. <laughs> yeah, um, and uh, Julie London, the actor, uh, actress, and singer, um, and some, they're not even the main. Those are the three recognizable names. Rory Calhoun is also in the Asphalt Jungle. Have you ever seen that? I've never seen that. No. Okay, it's very good, and he's very good in it. Um, but, uh, yeah, um, I, I did find a picture online of him from a, uh, 1980s, um, like soap opera called Capital hmm. or remember it was in primetime soap. I can't remember. Uh, so 1980, so he's, you know, yeah. an older, he's a silver yeah, Fox at that yeah. point. Um, uh, it was a very funny picture and I sent it to my coworkers <laughs> cause it's, it's just him looking like giving a thumbs up but looking kind of like scary, <laughs> like double thumbs up. Anyway. Um, so Rory Calhoun's in this movie, but he's not the star. Uh, the plot is that a, uh, a boy from town gets a job, um, helping out on the farm outside of town. That's, um, uh, the farm of Edward G. Robbins character and his sister and, uh, a daughter they adopted together. I'm not sure how that works, but he and his sister have raised this girl. Um, and, uh, this boy shows up every day and, and works and gets paid. And then, uh, he, but he's, uh, you know, he's a headstrong lad. And, uh, at one point during a, a storm, he's like, it's, it's a long walk back home. And he said, he decides I'm going to cut through the woods. Um, to save my, uh, save time going home in this storm. And a driver to Robinson is like, don't go in the woods, mm-hmm. especially not at night. Um, and of course this kid does anyway. And, uh, it's super scary. And he hears like sort of ghostly screams. Um, and he doesn't end up making it. He comes back and ends up sleeping in the barn. Uh, but then he becomes obsessed with what's out there in the woods and he finds out there's something out there called the red house. There's a house somewhere out there in the woods and mm-hmm. he thinks maybe that's where the screams are coming from. And so, um, he and the girl, the adopted girl, um, I don't know if to say daughter. I, I don't know if that, I guess I'm not sure if that's right. If a brother and sister adopt a, I don't know how things worked in the forties. Okay. Um, uh, so he and the girl, uh, become obsessed, um, with, 
finding out what's out in the woods, even though Edge Robinson has instructed this girl some, since she was a child, never, ever, ever go in these woods. Mm. Like he's clearly not cool with people going into the woods. Uh, so much so that he has paid um, Rory Calhoun's character uh, to essentially protect the woods, walk around with a gun and shoot anybody who's <laughs> trespassing in the woods. Um, and then the main characters, uh, uh, she's the, um, uh, <laughs> Nellie Olson from little house on the prairie of the town. She's the rich girl, um, is played by Julie London and she's jealous of, uh, all the time that this kid's spending with, uh, the other girl. Uh, and, um, I feel like I'm, I'm just, layering on sort of the there's a lot of plot here yeah or a lot of character stuff and i'm laying on because i don't want to get into what really happens okay because it uh it's fascinating in that it's not a movie you would once when it's all said and done you wouldn't describe it as a horror movie because it sounds like a horror movie early on but as things progress they become less supernatural but as they become less supernatural they actually become more disturbing and horrifying Mm mm-hmm uh, and it is a, such a terrific movie. Um, and it's directed by uh, Delmer Daves, uh, I think is how you say his name, who did the original 310 to Yuma. Okay, yeah. Um, and uh, it's definitely worth checking out. The Red House, uh, you should you should see it. All right. I know you're a big Edward G. Robinson fan. I am, yes. Um, so, okay. Here's another rewatch. We don't have to spend a whole lot of time on it. Apparently... I'm just going to be fascinated with Jurassic World for the rest of my life. Um, (laughs) Why would you be fascinated by a movie that is as dumb as Jurassic World? I don't know. Well, actually, I know because there's so much stuff going on underneath the surface, but it's not even that deep underneath the surface. Is it the Jimmy Buffett stuff? I do enjoy that, yes. Um, No, it's just... I now think that, because I definitely do, I continue to think that the film is a very, very in-depth commentary on what it is to be a blockbuster, what it is to work within the studio system, and what it is to be part to be making or directing part of a franchise and be perpetually compared to the original. Um, I think the film is all about that to such an extent that I think it sacrifices some satisfying plot elements so this is essentially the scream four of the jurassic yeah. park no question franchise. about it um but i think this actually goes even deeper because i don't think it's i don't think it's only referenced referencing jurassic park as i've said before i think it also has a lot to say about jaws um and the the nature of being a blockbuster hmm. um but J- jaws and jurassic park are directed by the same person so it stands to reason that colin trevorrow is making a movie all about how how difficult it is to be compared to steven spielberg right so anyway um but that you know there are characters that are sort of like studio executives in the way they approach the dinosaurs and the way a studio executive would approach you know, owning a specific property or whatever it is. And in doing so, they actually do so many things that are in the story dumb, but play into the theme, you know, uh, that it's, it does get bothersome. Like that's the thing. The film is not narratively that satisfying to me. Uh, thematically, it's apparently one of my favorite movies of all time, um, in how it explores these things. But every time I watch it, the more plot, the more plot problems I find and the more character problems I find not to mention. Uh, so the first Jurassic park is not necessarily an action movie. It's not real. One could say it's an adventure movie, but there's like some major element. I'd say that kitchen scene is, is basically horror, mm-hmm. right? Like it's, yeah. uh, 
and when you think about it, like the the deaths of Dennis Nedry and Robert Muldoon, those are right out of Alien. You know, being stalked by these things that are going to kill you. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot of horror elements to the film. That's true. Um, so, if I, I had to put it in a category. I would say adventure, but yeah. I don't have to put it in the category. Yeah. You don't have to put any movies yeah, in any I don't, categories. I don't have a gun to your head, David. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, and so if that movie, th- that movie's definitely not an action movie. Jurassic World, I think, can definitely be seen as, as an action, action, action movie. Action movie. There, there is no, as scary as the big dinosaur is, the Indominus Rex, as, as scary as it is, almost all of its attacks feel like something out of an action movie or a disaster picture as opposed to these so many of these smaller scale really drawn out sequences whether it be the t-rex attack in the first jurassic park or any of these other scenes i'm talking about where spielberg really sort of explores the the space the the space um from a suspense i remember seeing jurassic park in the theater and when uh the girl lexi is getting pulled up into the duct and the raptor jumps yeah, up yeah. and almost grabs her leg. The whole theater jumped like it yeah. was a horror movie. That was, yeah, it's a, that was cool. Spielberg <laughs> just has had the, that, that memory just came flooding back to me. And there's really no moment like that in Jurassic world. And I don't think it's because he's trying. I think it's because he's making an action movie or he's making a disaster movie mm-hmm. that happens to have dinosaurs. So, uh, it is interesting that the film just does not, it doesn't even attempt to, try to mimic the tone of the first Jurassic Park. So it was interesting rewatching it uh, on a number of levels. In some ways, I like it less. In some ways, I like it more. Um, and you still haven't seen it, right? No. I would like to get your take on it. I recognize okay. that I have at this point probably colored it quite a bit for you. <laughs> uh, yeah. But I would like to get your take on it. Yeah, I'll see it right after I see Fury Road. There we go. Um, all right. My last two won't take me long because they're both dumb. Uh, but this is also a... So, um, uh, we, I mentioned earlier the uh, Scream Factory being an imprint of Shout Factory. Uh, Kino Lober has plenty of uh, imprints of, of their own. Plenty of them are great. But one of them is... I'm sure it's great too, but it's maybe not my cup of tea. One of them is called Jezebel. And it's basically sexploitation stuff. Okay. Um, and I watched a couple of late 60s british sex uh romps uh from the same director pete walker um i'll talk about the first one first and then you can uh talk uh the first one's really more of a glorified short it's only about 40 minutes long and it's called or the yeah the on-screen title is for men only uh, if you look at it on imdb it's <laughs> apparently called hot girls for men only um <laughs> but maybe uh, uh they didn't think they actually needed to be that explicit because yeah. it's pretty clear and it's just a, it's a farce. It's a farce, except have most of the cast is women in their underwear. Yeah. Um, a guy who's a, uh, fashion writer and kind of a cad is being encouraged by his, um, uh, girlfriend to settle down because he's as a fashion writer, he's around models all the time and she doesn't like that. She gets jealous. And so he takes a job working for a magazine, a family of magazines that are Christian moral magazines. Okay. Uh, but then he goes to visit the, the owner of this at his 
country estate and it turns out that's all just a front this guy's a playboy who's got <laughs> women uh frolicking all over his uh, expansive estate and so uh by the end this guy you know our guy and the um magazine magnet or whatever uh and the guy's fiance and her parents and the vicar and someone else from the church they all have, have all, sex have they all shown up at this oh, estate okay. and it's all just people running around in their underwear um uh, it's really dumb was it fun not really just dumb not really okay it all seemed right. at times to be forcing the like the the farcical uh elements okay. or the benny hill type elements of like yeah. why is that person running away right now or why do they all get it there is i mentioned earlier when you were talking about that gross fruit the um um clowns in the car mm-hmm. there is one point where everyone's leaving and the uh magazine magnet or whatever is like we have to stop them and so he gets into his he runs out and gets into his like tiny sort of late 60s like roadster like yeah. very fashionable car and then like eight of the bikini girls come out and pile in the car after him like they're all just on each other's laps and just cramming as many of them in the car that's the only thing that was actually a little clever to me yeah uh, that's that's as high as the bar goes oh wow yeah no it's, it's pretty dumb all right so um i have three more movies uh this is yet another rewatch Oh, I forgot. I'm sorry. I forgot to mention. Okay, please do. The photographer for the magazine, mm-hmm. who's maybe the, I just everything about this movie is clearly offensive, and all these women are just objects. Right. Maybe the most offensive is the outlandishly gay stereotype of photographer. Uh, guy. Okay, yeah, I'm sure. Um, that's that's the part of it. It's like I can't even say like it was 1968. Like it's just like oh my god. Yeah, this is horrifying to watch. Can you do an impression? Of no. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Was it just Paul Lind? Just being like, hey, <laughs> Paul Lind, been... play gay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right. Um, okay, so I rewatched um, The Hateful Eight. Oh, cool. Uh, I was talking. I mean, I don't know if it's cool. I was talking with uh, some friends about just various Tarantino films, and and I and I. This is my third time watching it. I was. Because the first time I really liked it, the second time I liked it less, and so I was interested to see where I would land on the third time. And the film definitely does have... It's definitely one of those movies that I think rewards multiple viewings because there's the stuff that sticks out sticks out to you the first time you see it, and then other stuff just sort of fades into the background. But once you know about the main story and the the primary characters, it allows you to really sort of revel in the smaller details. Um, the first time around, obviously I was focused on Samuel Jackson and Kurt Russell and that sort of thing. The, the primary story and the lead characters. Second time around, I was able to take a lot of joy in the Bob character, uh, played <laughs> by Damien Bashir. Um, and this time around, was it the costumes? <laughs> Those costumes are great. They're terrific. Um, and I've liked Walton Goggins throughout, uh, like in, in every, uh, every time I've watched the film. But I really think he is, his character is written interestingly and is played interestingly. He's a very fascinating character. Um, and this, this actually speaks to sort of the shift that we're talking about, that I was talking about before. His shift from just this smarmy, mm-hmm. confederate, unlikable guy into a hero of sorts. And yeah. and one of integrity, by the way. 
mm-hmm. uh, is very interesting. And Walton Goggins, I think, pulls it off very well. And so I, I enjoy that quite a bit. I've always liked that speech towards the end. Um, that actually ends on kind of a joke because he passes out. But you have Jennifer Jason Lee talking about, you know, leading an army of, of men and all that. And you see this, this really touching moment where you talks, where he talks about, no, 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 my dad led an army and uh, it was men who were loyal to him and men that were dedicated to a lost cause. And so interesting in that moment, because he's talking about, uh, what is it? Mannix, Mannix's marauders or whatever, like an, a a small army that we would not be happy with. Mm -hmm. Uh, but the way in which he talks about it, you see it from his character's point of view. And it's like, it's a lost cause. They knew they were going to lose, but they felt disrespected. It does. It's not like it gives me respect for the Confederacy, but it really does help you to realize that, that the Confederacy was wrong, but it was also made up of individuals. It's, it's, the, it's the same reason that I feel like you can watch Buster Keaton's the general and realize, wait a minute, he's on, right. You know, he's Johnny gray. Yeah. Um, and I find that fascinating. This is because I'm not a fan of Hateful Eight overall, but that's something I love about it because this is a point that I always try to make, which is that different sides of every argument in American politics or social issues or whatever, yeah. if you spend more time with the opposition and get to know them better, things will go things will go better because you'll understand them, even if yeah. you don't agree with them. Because the thing is, you mentioned, I mean, you described Walton Goggins' character as going from uh, an obnoxious uh, cretinous buffoon to one of the heroes of the movie. Yeah. And it's not because he changes. It's because we get to know him better over yeah. the three hours. And I actually, I remember thinking that at the time and really, really appreciating that, um, alongside all the stuff I didn't like because well, really, I could see that through, I could sort of, if I could wipe some of Channing Tatum's brains away <laughs> from the, the, the lens then I could see something good, uh, something to appreciate in the movie. Yeah, it's uh, and then there are a couple other things I do enjoy. I always felt like Michael Madsen wasn't given a whole lot to do in the film, and that's true. He really, it's not that he's not given a lot to do. I guess that's true enough. But that the character is just not meant to be a, a lead character. It's a supporting character, and but there's some nice moments when when Kurt Russell's first interrogating him mm-hmm. and asking him, you know, what are you doing? He goes, Well, I'm writing my life story, and then he just says. Kurt Russell says, am I in it? And he just, and Michael Mads- Madsen just gives that terrifying smile and he says, you just entered. <laughs> and I love stuff like that, you know? Yeah. Um, it's really nice when you see, and almost everybody, yeah, pretty much everybody in this movie has worked with Tarantino before, but it's nice when Tarantino, when you have one of the actors that knows how to deliver this dialogue, yeah. delivering really fun dialogue. Who are the first timers? Is it Damien, Damien Bashir, Bashir and Jennifer Jason, Jennifer Lee? Jason Lee? Is that it? Yeah. And then Bruce Dern had a small role in uh, Django. Django. But yeah. uh, I think that's it. Yeah. Um, even uh, even uh, OB was yeah. uh, in Kill Bill. Yeah. Um, I guess in a way I also... Okay. I guess I also rewatched the Kill Bill movies, but not really. Um, I embarked on one of my dumb editing projects. Uh, oh, my where I put it in chronological order. Uh, I put the two movies in chronological order. Hasn't someone done that already? I have no doubt, but I'm not <laughs> going to go looking for that. Also, I want to do it and see how it works. Um, I, don't, I don't do this. I, you know, I'm not putting this out there. This is more just for myself. Yeah. And 
you come to realize. So wait, how are you ingesting all this footage? I don't have the I don't have the software that you have. You're just burning a DVD. Yeah, I, or, I, I mean, that, I, I'm ripping the, it onto my computer, computer and uh, and you don't have the software, but that's okay because BP paid for my software, uh, <laughs> which I got, which I asked you about, and you said that was fine. Yeah, I'm sure. Um, I've used it for things in the past, and so, um, and it's just very interesting when you actually watch this story in chronological order, you come to realize that oh, her, the bride winning, oh, that was a foregone conclusion once she gets out of Japan, like. When you realize, because the fight with the crazy 88 is the peak of like, that is the, the climax of the first film. Mm -hmm. And when you watch it in the order that you see it, then it's like, okay, that climax is over. So now we have a whole new movie. We have a whole new build and we're building to L driver and bill and that sort of thing. And so it seems in that moment, like, because it's a new movie, it's okay. Uh, this is going to be intimidating. This is go- she might not make it out of this. When you actually watch all of this in a row, mm-hmm. and you realize that the first person she goes after is Lucy Liu, and cuts through the crazy eighty-eight, and then she goes to a residence in Pasadena and kills Vivica A. Fox. But you see how she starts, and you feel like she's invincible. No one's going to stop her, right. and it actually it loses some of the stakes. I say loses though. This is not something Tarantino thought of. He clearly thought of it already and, <laughs> and, and worked it out he this way on purpose. Yeah. And so I find that interesting. I'm like what you just said. He put it in this order for a reason. You know, there are times when I, I look at nonlinear storytelling and I think, did somebody do this on purpose? Like, because it's the best way to tell their story or are they just doing it because, well, why not? Um, and I think in this, in this case, I, you know, I know it's hard to believe, but Tarantino is actually a better writer than, uh, than, uh, you know, uh, your average film, film school student, uh, who does stuff just because it might be cool. Right. Um, and so it, w- it wound up being a very interesting academic exercise. All right. Uh, the other dumb sex comedy I, w- I watched okay. is called school for sex. And it is, uh, an incredibly, insulting premise sure in which uh so there's a guy comes out of the army to find that both his parents have have died um and left him a ton of money Mm -hmm. but he keeps getting seduced by these women who bleed him dry and he ends up with no money at all right yeah so then he decides he's learned from his mistake sure he's going to turn his manner into a boarding school that's going to teach young women how to do this to other rich men in return for him getting a cut of their profits when they, so he's, it's turning young women into gold diggers and, and he's basically their pimp. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Pretty much. That's the premise of the movie. It's as insulting as that sounds. Um, what the hell man? And like, (laughs) these things are terrible. Yeah. There's one part where he hires a headmistress, um, for the school and one of the local brutes stalks her through the town and follows her home and is essentially attacking her when he comes home. Okay. Um, and then the, when he, the uh, owner of the mansion, then he's like, Hey, knock that off. And she's like, call the police. And he says, I don't think there's any call for that. All right. And then he's, and then he basically says, Hey, 
you brute, you're pretty fit. Why don't you run physical fitness in my school? But you have to promise not to rape this woman. <laughs> That's essentially one of the scenes uh, in the movie. It, it's un- unbelievable. Boy, oh boy. Yeah. These things are released on Blu-ray? Yes. Yeah. I imagine if you're a collector of this kind of kitsch. Yeah. Uh, this is the thing for you. At what point does kitsch become just like genuinely immoral? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So, so I've got two movies to talk about. Um, I saw Shane Black's the nice guys. Okay. Which I liked quite a bit. Um, a lot of people have been criticizing it saying a lot of people that I know have been criticizing it saying like, well, it's no kiss, kiss, bang, bang. They're correct. It's not. It is but not the same movie as it's not. Ex- it's not. I know people thought like, well, I'm just going to yeah, It's a different title. Sure. But this is just a big scam and I'm going to go see Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. Yeah. Um, but what I mean to say is like that is a movie that is often very, very funny. And there's a lot of it's very meta. There's a lot going on. And there's a silliness to it. And I think a lot of people when they heard about the nice guys and definitely the way that it was uh that it was advertised, I think people expected it to be a very silly movie. Uh, it is not. This is a different Shane Black. This is the Shane Black of, you know, just the a standard buddy cop movie, except they're not cops. Um, there is a, there is some silly humor, but it's actually much more of a detective story than I thought it was going to be. And it's the kind of labyrinthine detective story that you found even in Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. Mm-hmm. Um, and it takes place in the 1970s and it does sort of feel like, uh, it doesn't feel like that, but it's trying to evoke mysteries of the mystery movies and novels of the 1970s. Um, and, and I'd say it's pretty effective in that way. I think going in, it's important to drop any of your expectations that he's going to do another kiss, kiss, bang, bang. He's doing another like goofy, silly, just overtly cartoonish comedy. He is mm-hmm. not doing that. This is a, if you'll pardon me, this is a real movie <laughs> with real character arcs and, and a real time period. And there's just some interesting stuff going on in there that I really like. And the performances are, are very good. Ryan Gosling is a much better, uh, comedic actor than I think I, I don't know than, than I used to think. Hmm. And he's actually a very, there's a nice physical comedy to him. There's, there is a moment in the film where his character is lighting a cigarette. It's, it's in the dark. He's, uh, he's propped up against a tree. He's lighting a cigarette. And as he does, the, the flame from his lighter lights up that there is a corpse propped up against the tree next to him. Uh And the corpse has had like half its face blown off. And so he does that and we see it before he does. And then when he looks, he, I mean, it is dead on. He, he's Lou Costello. He responds the way Lou Costello does. (laughs) Like it just literally going like, (laughs) you know, stuff like that. And, uh, just physical, I mean, it's ridiculous, but I also kind of love it. You kind of made me want to see this movie that I had no interest in. It's yeah. I mean, I, but I've always liked Ryan Gosling. Uh, yeah, he's very good. Yeah. Did you ever see, uh, Crazy Stupid Love? I did not. He His and Emma Stone's story is fantastic. Yeah, I remember you saying that that was like the the main reason to see yeah. it. Um, 
Yeah, I th- I think you would like it. I, would you say you're a Shane Black fan for the most part? I don't know if I am actually. Okay. Because I don't think I love Kiss Kiss Bang Bang as much as uh, a lot of people do. Right. I think I'm maybe a little too squeamish. Oh, interesting. For some of the its glibness about how because yeah. there, there's some dark stuff going on. It's just not it's not treated that dark. Yeah. Except occasionally it is. And that's uh, the thing. This is this is one that I think takes its. I mean, some of the violence is of course goofy, but it does understand that there is like real weight to mm-hmm. some of these deaths. Um, yeah. So. I like uh, the long kiss goodnight. Yeah, I remember that. <laughs> but you don't like it? I think I might have seen it at a time when I wasn't ready to see it. Just And just the way that he writes and the types of stories that he tells. I don't know if I was ready for that. I also am not a huge fan of Gina Davis. That is... I have blown my mind. That is sacrilege. Gina Davis is a national treasure. Look, I've seen her... <laughs> I, I liked her in Thelma and Louise. You know what? I don't think I like action movie Gina Davis. Okay. Because I saw Long Kiss Goodnight, and I thought she was only okay. I saw Cutthroat Island, in which she was terrible. I didn't see that one. Uh, but I That's saw... a Rennie Harlan movie? Yes, it is. Yeah. I did see Thelma and Louise, and she's great in that. I saw The Accidental Tourist, for which she won Best Supporting Actress, and she's great in that. So she is a good actress. But, uh, wrong, but. A League of Their Own. Yeah, I like her in that. And and Beetlejuice. Yeah, she's yeah. not a bad actress, but I think somehow in an action situation, I think she, I don't know, she seems to think something different is expected of her, and then she's not able to deliver that. Hmm. Um, I will I will, uh, we'll have to agree to disagree. Okay. Have you seen Cutthroat Island? I've never seen Cutthroat Island. Oh, Island. boy. But I do Well, really that brings like out the worst in everybody. It's a long kiss, good night. I like the movie a lot. Uh, okay, my last movie. Okay is a movie that you know what i thought i had seen i thought i was i thought this was a rewatch huh. come to find out i had watched the first 15 minutes of it oh Stop. that's kind of what happened to me a few months ago with uh the man with the movie camera when i oh, realized okay, yeah. oh i'd only seen part of this in film school i hadn't watched the whole the i whole had thing. watched i'd started watching this movie i'd rented it from video update when i worked at video update threw it in realized i didn't quite have enough time but what i had seen and then I never got back to it. But what I had seen left enough of an impression on me that I was under the impression that I had seen the movie in its entirety. The movie is Roman Polanski's Frantic oh, with uh, Harrison Ford. And it is... The first half is amazing. The second half is fine. The first half... It's uh, Harrison Ford and... Uh, I don't remember the name of uh, the, the actress that plays his wife. They are vacationing in... Paris, and while they are there, um, the first day that they're there, uh, he is in the shower of their hotel room, and his wife gets a phone call and leaves the room to go uh, pick up a package or something like that, and disappears completely. Mm. And so it's him trying to. So the first half is really him. First off, even recognizing she's gone in a way that is alarming. And then trying to convince other people that this is alarming. And then trying to actually figure out, well, what do I do about this? How do I go about this? And going through all the standard channels. He talks to you know the Paris police. He talks to the American embassy. And nobody takes him seriously because this could just be a situation where she has left him. Mm-hmm. They don't know. And so he's trying to convince people of that he's not crazy. I mean, it's like that first half is about as Polanski as you can get. He's completely alone and people are either apathetic 
or condescending or they just don't speak his language mm-hmm. and he's and he's trying to make sense of something he's trying to make sense out of certain responses and he's just like i i'm getting nowhere with this uh then the last half is more of a, it what has happened becomes clearer and it becomes more of an espionage movie that is still well done but compared to that first half i mean that first half is is astounding that is almost like the vanishing i don't know if you ever saw the vanishing um, uh, no i never did actually it is i think you would love it it's really great and so i'm happy i saw frantic uh for the first time i thought it was <laughs> like hey i remember liking this movie oops i guess i didn't um i liked the first 15 minutes of it not enough to return to it apparently but um yeah uh but by and again, like that second half still has some good moments to it. And I also forget what an effective actor Harrison Ford can be in a movie like this. Because um, he's not necessarily an everyman, but he's not a standard movie star either. He's somewhere in between, which is why him as Jack Ryan or him in The Fugitive works so well. There is a certain. He doesn't like sparkle on screen like a George Clooney. He seems just like a regular guy who is very attractive and has a certain degree of charisma on screen. And so I can believe him in parts like this. It's a really great performance in a movie that is the first half is great. Second half is fine. And overall it's a good movie. All right. I'm moving on to TV. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, I watched, well, it's been a while uh, since we did one of these, but I, I watched what I thought at the time was the final season of Nashville. Yeah. Um, but now I find out Nashville is coming back to yeah. CMT. Um, word is not uh, uh, final on which cast members are actually returning. Oh, interesting. Um, but yeah, we will have more Nashville. But uh, I, 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 there's there's a there's a part of me that is. When it comes to TV, I'm all about new, you know, boundary pushing and, you know, new prestige shows and peak hashtag peak TV and all of the, all of the new, like Sopranos forward, like the new, the new normal for TV. Mm-hmm. I'm all about all that stuff. I like Mr. Robot pushing the boundaries mm-hmm. like Louie, right? Sure. Doing, doing weird stuff. I like all these things, but there is a part of me that is just a, classical tv <laughs> lover mm-hmm. i like just old school forms i'm the one like between the two of us i'm the one who is more likely to enjoy a multi-camera sitcom yes um because i i just like that and nashville is just it's a throwback in terms of being a primetime soap it's mm-hmm. the stories are often preposterous uh people um you know it's supposed to take place across the whole city of nashville but it's actually about like eight characters who are all way too involved in each other's lives falling in and out of love with one another uh and um it just it just works for me It, it it hits certain certain buttons and i can hear people talk about how uh how stupid it is all day long but uh i'm really glad that it's coming back Mm -hmm. and the the music's fun i like i like nashville's version of contemporary country music more than I like actual like contemporary country music. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I liked it to show, you know, as much as I liked Glee, um, those are all covers and natural is a show that has multiple original songs. Oh, every I didn't single know week. that. That's interesting. Yeah. And that's part of their business models. You can buy them on iTunes the next day and stuff. Like that. Oh, that's great. Um, yeah. Uh, so, uh, I watched the end of Nashville. I'm glad it's coming back. All right. What about you? I watched 
the entire first season of Lady Dynamite. Oh, I can't wait to watch that. All right. It is a very novel show. It's very, very funny. Our our best friend, Fred Melamed, is wonderful in it, as is Maria Bamford, as is everybody. Everybody does a great job. Um, with special commendation for Mary Kay Place as oh, Maria Bamford's her. mother. Oh, and doesn't uh, Ed Bigley Jr. plays her father? Yeah. But her father doesn't play as big a role okay. as her mother, and Mary Kay Place is really something i I don't i don't know if the emmys are going to pay any attention to this show but if they do they should pay attention to her for uh supporting actress because she's marvelous um and so much of the movie uh, so much of the show is there's a nice meta quality to it it really does you know one of the things that she's clearly trying to do is is capture the essence of what it is to live with mental illness Mm -hmm. and i think she does so in a very interesting way She's commenting on her own career. There's a lot of time spent on what it is to be the face of a major chain, which she was the she was the face of Target for a long time. Yeah. And if I was a Target executive and I was watching the show, I'd be like, hey, you know, um, you know, oh, that reminds me. Have you noticed that the do you hear me now guy is now chilling for a different uh Yeah, it, I did like, not. It, and he's, he references it. He's like. Uh, you used to hear me ask, can you hear me now or whatever? He's like, no, I'm with these guys. And I feel like good for him. My yeah. wife is like, he's a traitor. <laughs> His positions are evolving. That's the way I look at it. Um, so and it's just like, it's all about money for you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> when you're an actor in a commercial. Yes. Yeah. Um, so there's so much good about Lady Dynamite. It has such a nice original. It is about as original as as Maria Bamford is, you know. So if you're a fan of hers, then you will definitely like it. Here's what I hate. <laughs> okay. And it's a big hate. I'm gonna I'm uh, taking this with a grain of salt because I know that I have always been a bigger Maria Bamford fan than you have. I don't think this is a function of her. Okay. That's that's true. You have been, and it might be a function of her. But I, I don't know. It's hard to say. I'll say this, and you let me know what you think, having not seen the show. Um, at first, the show seemed to have very, very specific things to say about middle America, with a special exception made for Maria Bamford's parents, uh, that these are just rubes who don't understand anything, mm. really anything. And they're just incredibly small-minded and are never going to be able to think outside the box. That's what I thought for the first half of the show. Then I saw the way certain people in Hollywood are portrayed. And they are portrayed much the same way, but in a different, but with a different tone. They are more vapid and self-obsessed and that sort of thing. And so I thought, like, okay, so it's not middle America. This, is, this has room for everybody. And I thought, nope. Sorry, hang on. I found the low. I found the not the lowest common denominator. I found the common denominator here. Although I guess same thing. Um, non-creative people. The film seems to have an attitude towards non-creative people that, as I tweeted out, borders on contempt. Hmm. Um, borders on contempt, but I think. I'm not sure if it, if I would say it tips into that. What I think it absolutely does have is a complete lack of interest in them. I don't think it cares who they are, what they think. I don't. I think it has nothing but condescension for them. You know what? Contempt. I'm going to say it. I think it, and I guess this is probably a function of Maria Bamford, uh, but like 
You know, I, I think that when you are a comedian who does what she does and is as original as she is, you are going to run across people that, that quote unquote don't get it. And I, and that can be frustrating undoubtedly, but to act as the, to then act as though those people don't get anything artistic or anything creative is, I think, remarkably insulting and really elitist. And I say that as somebody who regularly with my, my friends that are creative, we regularly talk about like relatives, not, uh-huh. not in a condescending way, but more as like, as like, there are people that will just go f- for whatever job they find interesting and pays them well and allows them to spend time with their family. Like they don't really care as long as the job's not doing something immoral. Like they don't really care what the job does as long as it allows the, like their real lives are when they get out of work Yeah. for creative people, their real, their quote unquote real lives where their passion is, is usually where their work is. And I look at people that aren't that way with fascination, uh, but not condescension. And so I definitely do see a certain divide, but I don't see it as an us and them. And I really don't see it as a everyone against all, all these idiots are against me. And so it is. Yeah, a, now I want to watch it even more. Yeah, and I because I feel like as a non-creative person, mm-hmm. I you're a creative person. Yeah. you're. Let's nope. say this: you are creatively minded. Uh, you can uh, talk at length and have talked at length for almost 500 episodes, not to mention countless movie journals. But there's since I mean, between being analytical and being creative. That's true. And I don't but you I'm have. Creative. I'm being. I'm analytical. Um, anyway, hearing you describe that, I feel like that does sound like a flaw and a weakness, but it also doesn't incense me. Like it seems to incense you, but maybe I'd have to watch it to, it's, to see. The thing is like, it's a, if that is what she's actually trying to do. And if that is her point of view, it is a point of view. And I'm not going to say it's necessarily a flaw with the show because she's just expressing her point of view. And, and definitely the, the show does take on her inner life. And so if this is how she feels when people are saying that they don't understand her comedy or whatever, I get that, but don't ask me to like it. You know, uh, all it means is that underneath all it means to me, if this show is in fact her as a show, um, if that's what it is, then what it tells me is that underneath the, exterior of being kind of this humble like mess and like oh boy i'm i'm crazy underneath that is a deep well of judgment probably stemming from resentment and loneliness uh but the judgment is definitely there and that is not a thing that i necessarily enjoy watching that said i still laughed a lot all right you know okay um i can i can pivot off this oh good speaking of shows told from a particular point of view uh, I watched the new Roots miniseries. Oh, good. Which I thought was terrific. Um, I had never seen the original. Uh, one of the things I found so fascinating about it is how entirely it is told from the black character's point of view. Okay. So. Uh, you mean like, when you say black characters, you mean. Plural. Plural. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it, you there, there's there's no i mean this might be difficult for some white viewers to to they might have a difficult time with this because there are no white protagonists at yeah. all which is not to say they're all 
villains, except they kind of are because the only white people that they are interacting with are slave owners yeah. and slavery is the is antagonist is the antagonist of the story. Yeah. And so in a way all the white people are um are villains. But what it ends up doing is putting you inside the slave's point of view where you start to develop a sort of moral relativism as the thing goes on. Yeah. And you start to, you start to think of like, well he's better than he is. You know, this one's right. a bit like even though like uh, like so James Purifoy and Matthew Good play brothers mm-hmm. um who are both slave owners and some of the slaves get sold from one to the other. And Matthew Good seems at first like, oh, this is a trade-up. He's a nicer guy. But then he sort of casually starts talking about when Kuta Kinte's daughter turns 15, casually saying, like, I guess it's time for me to breed her. Like, which of these other, you know, yeah. uh, I wonder which of these other young slaves. Just, ca- just like nonchalantly talking about people as possessions, as as livestock, essentially. Yeah. Uh, and it's horrifying all over again. And I kind of love that the show, the, the series does that, that every time, um, uh, every time you start to get close or one of the, uh, slaves starts to get, to develop an affection for one of the slave owners, something like that comes up to remind yeah. you like, uh, this person might be nice for their situation, but the situation is still terrible for these people. Yeah. Uh, and I, um, uh, I, I, I really thought that was compelling. And the other thing, you can hear me talk at length about Roots uh, on Hey, Watch This. The other thing I want to point out that we did talk about on Hey, Watch This um, is the, the the violence and the explicitness of the mm-hmm. of the bloodshed and the gore uh, on Roots, which I did not expect because I, I thought this was going to be like a big, I guess, I was thinking of old History Channel, you know, <laughs> like being kind of, uh, I figured stuff would kind of happen in slow motion when someone get got shot. It'd be more about a puff of smoke than than yeah. it would be blood. You know that that sort of uh, that sort of uh, softened, uh, sanitized uh, yeah. view of history is not that at all. This is a uh, disturbingly gory show. It's like times. the Passion of the Christ of slavery, <laughs> kind of. Yeah, um, and uh, yeah, as it should be. I mean, one one you know the. Uh, the famous scene everyone knows from Roots, even though I've never seen it, is when he's being he's being whipped and. Uh, refuses to say that his name is Toby, yeah. uh, insists that his name is uh, Kunta Kinte. Like, every time he gets whipped, a half pint of blood comes out of his back and, oh. like, and like splatters on the dirt. It's That's tough stuff. And they show, like, the the whip itself has, like, shards of glass it, yeah. it tied, tied to it. It's not just a, a whip. It's horrifying. A character gets half his foot cut off. Oh. There's a... Uh, one runaway slave. This part is in slow motion, but it's in slow motion to make it even more disturbing when a runaway yeah. slave gets pelted by about half dozen rifle shots at once. Yeah. Uh, in slow motion, you're just seeing like just the person's like chest yeah. explode. It's disturbing. And it's, um, equally disturbing the way, uh, in the, in the first episode, we talked about this on how watch this, uh, the first episode before they get to America, there's a, mm-hmm. an attempted revolt, uh, on the slave ship, the slaves, yeah. uh, attempted revolt. They are unsuccessful. And the, uh, the way that the, the slaves who were killed in the revolt, the way their bodies are dealt with is just disturbingly nonchalant, just the way they're just like yeah. tossed overboard. And so I think there does seem to be a mission statement here to depict violence to the human body and disregard for human bodies um, as a sort of ongoing visual metaphor for slavery itself. So it's um, 
I mean, this is kind of going to tie into our main episode this week, but this is, uh, uh, this is an example of, uh, I think, um, violence, um, and gore used, uh, used right. I would yeah. say to, to, to make a point it's, it's never, um, it's never exhilarating. Um, except sometimes, sometimes if it's not a slave who gets shot, if a sure. white person gets shot, you do kind of feel for a second, maybe a little bit of exhilaration. Yeah. Uh, but then you have to realize like, Oh yeah, it's still, still human life. Like, yeah. uh, but you're so in the slaves point of view that, um, uh, yeah, it's, uh, I, I was, I, I really found it to be terrific. And I kind of uh, reading about the original, like I know it's a huge, uh, landmark of television history and i am kind of interested but just reading about it in comparison to this it seems like it is more of what i was afraid this would be a little i saw a few episodes in school of the original and i remember thinking it was very good but yeah it sounds like this one is much more intense here's a fun thing yeah by fun uh, possibly infuriating i don't know uh episode one of roots when did it premiere i don't remember okay um I mean, there were four nights in a row, so I think it was like a okay. A so or Monday night, being a num- being a uh, a member of a number of uh, like face like conservative Facebook groups, uh-huh. um, <laughs> there was uh, when when it came on, a lot of people said it was very very good and obviously very brutal and that kind of thing. So you know that's fine. It's not like people were against this thing. What got them, and I didn't actually look this up if this were true or not, but somebody said that actually that it premiered on Memorial Day. Oh, that might be true. Okay. And somebody, a, a number of people had a problem with that because they said that like, and don't wait, don't worry, I weighed in on the conversation. So uh, they had a problem with it because it seemed like it seemed to them like a sort of agenda that it was on Memorial day, a day that is meant to celebrate certain aspects of, you know, the people that gave their lives and that kind of thing to defend America and blah, 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 that, that this thing would be released that talked about how shitty America can be. And a lot of people echoed that. And then I chimed Fourth of July. No, I know. I chimed you're, in. You're making that person's making a couple of jumps there. Sure, sure. Um, to make that point, because I don't think that's uh, yeah, that doesn't seem. Well, what I said is that you know I, I see where you're coming from, but the thing is this: we this is Memorial Day. We are memorializing and remembering the people that gave their lives so that America could be what it is. But it is important, as we are remembering this, that not everybody did that willingly and that that deserves to be remembered. It doesn't mean that, you know, what what we are now is bad or that certain principles of the country were inherently bad. It's not a it is not an inherent indictment of the country to to release this on Memorial Day or to make it at all. It is simply in fact, I kind of like that it was released on if, if in fact it was that it was that it premiered on Memorial day because you can't just remember the stuff you like and you need to remember all of it. And I think this is a thing that needs to be remembered. Right. I don't think we're going to fall into it again, but you know, this is not an instance where I think like history will repeat itself in that people will own other people, but it still is just in the sense of like, it's a completely different perspective. And the fact that you that you ins- that a person instinctively doesn't like seeing this other perspective on Memorial Day to me 
is all the more reason why we should. Yeah, that's a good point. I so. still think Memorial Day to me is more, it's specifically about war veterans. Yeah. And that's not a part of this, right. at least not in, eventually actually, you know, both because Roots takes place over such a long period of time. Yeah. Both the Revolutionary War and the Civil War are parts of this miniseries. Yeah. But not in this, for in the first, not in the one that's on. How many episodes was it? It's four, but they're over two hours each. Like each okay. one's like two hours and 15 minutes. Okay. So it's a total of nine hours, I guess. Oh boy. Um, okay. Uh, so. Yeah. What's next for you? Next for me, I watched the first season of Documentary Now. Oh, I can't wait to watch that. Oh, David. So wonderful. I love it so much. Uh, each episode is a half hour. Mm-hmm. There is one that's a two-parter. But each episode is a half hour, and each episode is a, is a reference either directly to one movie, like there's one that's, de- that's absolutely Grey Gardens. The, there's one that is reference to Nanak of the North. But in this it's not, hey, let's watch their version of Nanook of the North. It's, this is a 1980s documentary about the inconsistencies of Nanook of the North. Interviewing some like older people who were there and explaining how some of this happened. So that's one, so those are like about specific films. But then there are other documentary, uh, other episodes that are about reference to like genre, mm-hmm. uh, or not genre, but like Specific documentary categories, you know. There's one I've never seen an episode of Vice, um, I have, which is on um, HBO, yeah. right? But there's one there. I know enough about Vice to recognize what they were doing, even if what well, not recognized, but to realize what they were doing. And then when I looked up reviews of it, people said like, "This is so spot on. You have no idea." And so it's like, well, I guess I better watch Vice if for no other reason, so I can appreciate this joke. <laughs> Um, and then they have one that's very much like a human interest documentary. Uh, they have one that's, that's like a rock doc. And what's interesting, Wait, is that the blue jean committee. Yeah. Uh, I've, I heard the song. They put the song. Out. Yeah. Yeah. And some of these are just pure comedy. Some of them is this are, where you said Christopher guest would come up again? No, no, no. Uh, well, I guess I do think that it does owe a lot to that. Uh, I was going to say Christopher guest cause he was in princess bride, but, oh. um, but definitely, I do think that that trying to trying to capture the essence of these as much as possible um, to the point where you don't always look down on the people in it. Like that Blue Jean Committee thing is funny in a lot of ways, uh, specifically the fact that these guys are from Chicago uh-huh. and uh, and their big thing like. It, it's it doesn't play into their music, but they you know they both you know kind of talk you know with the Chicago kind of thing, and they <laughs> and they both came from like the sausage industry, you know, a rich mm-hmm. history of sausage making, and uh, and the the day comes when they actually have to play a benefit, but it's actually like a like a pita benefit, <laughs> and so they're like they're really conflicted about it and stuff like that. <laughs> so you know that's funny, but what's fascinating is that. In that one especially, in other ones too, but in that one especially, there is a tremendous pathos and there's a lot of genuine sadness and it feels like, you know, in the same way that A Mighty Wind, yes, it makes fun of folk music and it makes fun of most of these characters, but there is also genuine 
appreciation for the emotional situation of Catherine O'Hara and Eugene Levy's characters. And so uh, that is something that that as this series goes on, you actually see a, uh, them sort of fall in love with making these types of movies and try, and understanding the power behind them. That said, they're also tremendously funny. And the Grey Gardens one is very interesting because uh, it captures the weirdness of Grey Gardens, but it also incorporates elements of other movies into it, and uh, it's uh, delightful. So okay. you've got to watch. I it just today. love that this that exists. It exists. Yeah, yeah. that yeah. a network IFC right. Uh, yeah, uh, gave the green light to something this weirdly like specific. Yeah, and it is specific because America's clamoring for Nanak of the North parodies. Yeah. All right. Yeah, um, that's the other thing. Like, it's so specific that I mean, it would have to be IFC because yeah. theoretically, that's those are movie fans. Yeah. No one is going to know this Nanak of the North thing. People, people probably wouldn't know Grey Gardens. Maybe people would recognize like the Vice thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, re- I recognize I'm sounding kind of condescending, but by and large, Nanak of the North is not in the zeitgeist right yeah. now. Yeah. But anyway. All right. Uh, I'll just run through the last two real quick. I started watching Unreal, which you somehow haven't heard of. Yeah. What um, is this thing again? It's with so, that, uh, that's the one with that girl from uh, Curse 2, right? <laughs> no, from the first. The, oh, the first No, one. you're right. It is Curse 2. Sorry. Right, I'm, I'm getting confused. You were right. Uh, yeah, Curse 2. The bite. Snake um, arms. Snake, just one. Snake okay. Um, yeah, so Sherry Appleby and Constance Zimmer play um, a producer and executive producer, respectively, on a show called Everlasting, which is mm. The Bachelor. Okay. So it's basically a behind-the-scenes drama on the set of a Bachelor-type reality show okay um and it's really really good um it's not if you're uh, a lot of people have already watched this and i'm still on the first season the second season has already started airing um which is why i decided uh my wife and i decided here's what happened um after re- uh, recording on sunday with you you and kyle uh i went home uh and my wife and i had some time to kill we, were, we, were, we had, had plans to go out to dinner, out to dinner that night um we had some time to kill, and we were like, let's watch a couple. We needed to watch, like, Unreal. Uh, we have time for a couple before it to go out. So we watched two, and then we were in, uh, my wife was like, do you want to just order in and watch? We <laughs> yeah. ended up watching four more episodes of Unreal and ordering dinner. Quick side note. Is that not your favorite? Okay, that is, like, my favorite part of marriage. Mm-hmm. When you realize that when the two of you kind of have the same thought, <laughs> yeah. and you just realize... No, this is our plan now. <laughs> yeah. And this is what we're doing. Yeah. Uh, and I just love it because it's almost, somebody needs to suggest it verbally, but it's kind of an unspoken thing that, look, we all know what's going to happen here. We're not going out for dinner tonight. Yeah. We got to w- keep watching Unreal. I love that <laughs> stuff. Uh, yeah. So we watched six of them uh, total um, and I'm, I'm hooked. And then my wife went out of town and I have to wait for her to come back to, to, to finish it. Oof. Uh, well, luckily we stopped it at the sixth one, which is the worst one uh. of the, unless it gets worse after that. Uh, the sixth episode was kind of a bummer. Um, but, uh, what I was going to say before is one. So the, one of the creators of the show is someone who used to work on the bachelor. Mm-hmm. That's where this came from. But if you're expecting a satire, that's not what this is. It's not even really about reality TV. Right. It's really, it's a workplace drama about these two, uh, very capable and very flawed, uh, 
female anti-heroes who are sometimes friends and sometimes um, working very much uh, against one another that happens to be set on a reality show. Right. Um, and that's not uh, entirely true because um, part of the point of the show is that reality TV, especially these kind of uh, reality competition shows, are um, inhuman <laughs> and that it requires these two people, in order to be good at their jobs, they have to be without empathy sometimes. Okay. Um, and not just without empathy, but actively working against the best interests of the contestants on the show in order to make good television right. and be good at their jobs. So it's that that conflict is a huge part of it. But it is... Uh, despite its high concept setting, it is a um, a pretty straightforward and pretty uh, dark and multi layered character drama. It's really good. Hmm. Um, yeah, and it's uh, n- you know there's I mean the 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 antihero as TV lead has become has almost gotten uh, drilled into the ground. Uh, you know with you know. Tony Soprano yeah. and then and Walter White and uh, Don Draper and yeah. then all the people in the shows that you don't even remember because they weren't good, but they're all about like troubled men. I think this is it's uh, amazing how in, how easily you can breathe new life in it by having it be two women. Yeah, uh, it's and the fact that there's two of them probably yeah, helps yeah. too. Yeah, um, and it also um, there's one actor I know you're a fan of on the show, Craig Bierko. Oh yeah, plays the shows. A creator and the other executive producer who doesn't actually do anything. He just like created the show or maybe he stole it. Ah. Where, I, mean, I haven't finished the first season, so I don't really know how that story is going to play out, but he created the show. It's a massive, massive hit. He's like a multi multi-millionaire now. And now he doesn't do anything. He just yeah. like coasts on, uh, on that show. Um, yeah. So it's good. All right. And then the other thing, uh, I caught up up to this point on this season of inside Amy Schumer, I had watched the first episode the week it aired, and I thought it was a real uh, letdown. And um, a lot of the season continued in that vein, unfortunately. Mm. But it also has uh, has has picked up the pace and and gotten good again. I think there was. I think Amy Schumer was maybe because she's a very busy person. She and her writing staff were having trouble blending the multiple identities of the show. Cause Amy Schumer has also been like, even by sketch show standards has also, has always been kind of a multiple personality type show mm. because it has different kinds of sketches, but then it also has stand up in it, but then it also has man on the street stuff. And then it also has interviews. Like it's kind of all over the place. Um, and when it's on at its best, it finds a sort of theme per episode to wrap all these different things around. Um, and um, for a lot of this season, they were either, either just being um, lazy with the fact that Amy Schumer is super famous now and they can get big stars uh, on the show. Mm-hmm. And so that's always kind of annoying when it's like, yeah. hey, the joke is that this guy is here, right? Yeah, um, it's kind of the Simpsons thing. Uh, yeah, um, or it was because, you know, Amy Schumer has, as she's become more famous, become more and more outspoken on the issues that are important to her. And she has done a really, really good job in the past of making those fun, making points while still making those funny. There was, there's one in like, I think it's in the second season that's um, about, uh, she plays a, uh, a woman who 
decides to play her her boyfriend plays like I don't know Call of Duty. I don't mm-hmm. know what those whatever the one of those like modern warfare type of sure. games are. And she decides to play while he's out and plays the female character. And then the story becomes not about her fighting a war, but about getting raped and then having to fight the bureaucracy and being told uh, and, and being uh, fighting obstacles at every point in reporting it and getting it investigated. It's just like really funny conceptually and an execution and incredibly biting mm-hmm. and. Um, and smart uh, in its point of view. That's an, uh, that's one of my favorite sketches she's ever done because right. it was done so well. This this season you had a, a lot of stuff where it's like, okay, I definitely get the point here, but um, there's it's you're propping it up on a very thin sketch premise yeah. or without a lot of uh, jokes or maybe just like kind of like <laughs> the Pat Oswalt's bit about right touching like uh, doing uh, touch up on a screenplay for oh, an yeah, yeah. animated thing that's already been. It's like well, we've already got all the points we need to make about gun control, or whatever the yeah. issue is for this sketch, and then so there are a few good jokes sprinkled in around the edges, yeah. but it doesn't come together. Um, and so even when I agree with the points of view that she's making, I kind of felt like um, she's not ma- she wasn't making a good sketch comedy show. No. That's it. As it went on. Um, and it got, uh, weirder. Um, that show's always been at its best when it's, when it's weird. Um, the, the last couple episodes have been really strong and there's mm-hmm. one that is about the, you know, the commercials, um, and I can't remember now which phone company it is, but it's like the guys go in to ask questions about their phone and it's just like that cute ponytailed girl. Who oh yeah. Works. Yeah. So Amy Schumer plays one of those girls mm-hmm. and Kyle Dunnigan plays the actor who's the guest actor in that spot. And, uh, the director is just like braiding him. I can't, I don't even want, I can't even like go into how it gets so pessimistic and conceptual about who the intended audience is for this okay. and why they respond to this perky <laughs> young woman, uh, that it becomes like really disturbing. Uh, that's so great. Okay. Um, and there's also a sketch this is about halfway through the season that, uh, is, <laughs> uh, I think, you, I think you have an appreciation for this kind of, okay. uh, sketch too, where the premise is so obvious and stupid and yet they commit to it to a point where it becomes ridiculously funny. Absolutely. And so they did a parody of the Nick, you know, the Cinemax show right. called <laughs> the Nick jr. <laughs> and it was basically just the Nick, except all the doctors are little kids, but it's just as bloody, it's, the same show. it's just as bloody, uh, and, and disturbing and graphic as the Nick, but it's just all little kids. That is incredibly stupid. <laughs> and yet, yes, you are correct. Yeah. Uh, so, um, I think we're done. Yep. <laughs>